Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact, Second Wave, Chapter 91 The heavy footsteps of the massive war-steel cyborg echoed as they thudded on the steps leading deeper into the citadel of the Eternal Woe, down past the shield generators, past the sepulchre of the restless ones and corrupted suds, in still twitching corpses moaned out in lines of code and sorrow. Below the great foundations of the massive keep, the vaults of eternity's sorrow. The great cyborg wore no cape, bore no mantle, was merely tons of black war steel, covered in burning runes of ancient power and fury. Spikes lifted from the shoulders to carry banners of ancient lost terror's martial might. Two burning red eyes and a skull formed a head stared deeply into one's soul, searching for the smallest piece that might be left in those who surf beneath the eye. Belona followed behind the great cyborg, her missing eyes replaced by burning purple fire. A slash across her throat, oozing blackish blood down her neck and into a torso of her combined assault infantry armor, covered by ancient sigils and symbols, including the bear and eagle fighting one another over banners of red, white, blue. It was cold, the steep, beyond the great shield generators, the blood that had slowly oozed to the cover, the floor, tacky and thick, never dying, slowly spreading as the uncounted legions ground against one another outside the citadel walls, and their blood soaked into the earth to ooze through the stone and jurisdiction of the fortress. A vault, ancient beyond time, and engraved jurisdiction covered by a thin layer of plasma glass taken from the lost terror and engraved with runes of wrath and hatred. Only numbers were inlaid in the glass. Eighty-two, one hundred and one, one, three, nine. All numbers that quivered into their own holy wrath and hatred. Symbols were inlaid with blood of red cinnabar alloy. Symbols of lost terror that had been forgotten by those who had once fought in their name and under their banner. The massive cyborg reached out, wrapping his massive fist around the handles of the vault door. Bologna watched how many of the eons attempt to open the doors. All had failed. The black wall steel cyborg pulled the thick vault door from its housing, moving it carefully, reverently, and leaning it against the wall. Bologna trembled in arousal at the cold mist that poured from the vault, smelling of rage and wrath, of hatred and fury. The mist pulled in the hallway as the cyborg moved into the vault. Suspended in the mists was nanites programmed to devour flesh, jurisdiction, superconductors, yet none touched Bologna, which made her knees tremble that her Dark Lord's power kept her safe from ancient microscopic robots that snarled their hatred and rage of the lost terror. Bologna looked inside, peeking around the corner like a child peering at her parents. All that was inside the room was a pedestal of black rock and crystal box on top of it. 
The cyborg moved up and lifted the box. Lightning arced from the walls, from the ceiling, ravaging the cyborg, attempting to tear it asunder with electric fury. The black cyborg ignored it. He exited the vault, handing the Christeel box to Bologna. Faithful wall maiden, attend to this. The cyborg rumbled. It picked up the door and replaced it carefully, as if the room beyond still held Bal's treasures. Bologna stared at the box. Inside was a skull of blackened bone and a nitrogel system designed to keep tissue alive outside the human body. The Christeel was covered in runes and sigils strange and arcane, older than Bologna's knowledge. A human face was stretched over the blackened skull. Bologna followed the massive figure up into the heart of the citadel, holding the box with the flesh-adorned skull, kept glancing at the face. The skin had tattoos, tattoos from Bologna's youth and before. Combined service number, blood type, rank, criminal ID number, a teardrop on the left eye corner for a lost terror that matched the one in the corner of Bologna's eye. Mama, help me, Mama, Mom! The memory of a child screamed of a soul net, reaching for her, dissolving in a bright white flash, surged up in Bologna's brain as she ruthlessly thrust it away as more memories surged up of women, children, men, pleading for help, all wiped away by the bright white flash. The tear for lost terror oozed from her eye, became liquid crystal and slid down her face, down her neck, and vanished into the slash. She swallowed it, the pain, the memories that were hers and others, and felt the burning cold of lost terror burn deep in her soul. Through the halls of butchery, the giant cyborg led Bologna, pushing through the doors, into a room where creatures more and more machine than human, spidery limbs extended from their backs with surgical soles, drills, and nerve suturers, dentrite stitches, and flesh staplers. The cyborg sat down in one of the great chairs, normally reserved for the lesser titans. The chair groaned with his weight. The flesh warpers moved forward, but a silent snarl from the cyborg sent them scurrying. The face shield opened, revealing a black wall steel skull, thread-like, worm-like hoses covering the sides of the skull. Nitrogel oozed from them to make the skull gleam wetly. Attend me, faithful Bologna, the dark beauty. The figure rumbled. It held up a vial containing a thick, viscous fluid as red and as blood from the arterial spray. Removing her armored gauntlets, Bologna felt her insides quiver with dark joy as she moved up to her war-steel lord, taking a vial in her hands and kissing it. Manted, royal, jelly, tainted and fouled by the touch of human rage, she could taste the agony of lost terror vibrating within the vial and moaned in pleasure as her tongue split in response to the sheer fury, barely restrained by the Christeel vial. She undid the cap, slowly whispered prayers that bubbled up in her mind from a hundred different languages to a hundred forgotten gods. She poured the jetty into her hand, feeding deep in her soul the great scream that slathered over the black war-steel skull. She knelt before the case and offered prayers that had gone unanswered. A dozen different voices whispering in her mouth and her own voice bubbled from the slash in her throat. The wall spirit within the case heard her prayers, judged them, weighed them, unlocked.
She lifted the face free from the skull of blackened bone and within the box, and, still reciting prayers and mantras, placed it upon the black wall-steel skull of a dark lord. With skills honed on a thousand battlefields, in a hundreds and hundreds surgical bays, Malona attached the face's living nerves to the dentrite trails of the wall-steel skull. Attaching veins with writhing synthetic worms that oozed nitrogel and used bolts of fury glass taken from the lost terror to affix the face to the skull. When she was finished, she stepped back, sinking to the floor, pressing her face against the wall steel foot, her ivan and split tongue licking the blood that oozed from the wall steel. The cry-steel box and the blackened bone skull shivered and crumbled into bone dust and gleaming crystalline dust. I am Osiris of War Steel Flame. The figure intoned and lips moving in a parody of speech over the shining durochrome teeth. Attend me, beautiful one. Bologna moaned again and struggled to her feet, her dark lord's presence pushing her. For Terrasol raged up in her mind, bringing out the taste of sand and armor and fear. She rolled the taste in her mouth, savoring it as her own voice echoed in through the aeons of her mind. She followed the black cyborg up into the very heart of the citadel to the chamber of the black throne. Beating her soul rejoice, voices bubbled up in her mind, eyes for succor, roars of rage, children pleading for help, mothers pleading for their children, battle cries screamed through bloody teeth, all a great symphony in her mind as she trod the tiles on the throne room in the wake of her dark lord. The black throne of the murdered Camelot, made with the viscous fluids of a million slaughtered mantids, sat atop a pile of durochrome-coated mantid and human skulls. The undying severed head of the mantid overqueen, still living despite pleas for death, capped the throne. None who had sat in it in a thousand years had survived. Their eyeballs had exploded, their brains boiling from their skulls, breaking their bones. Flowing from empty eye sockets, their mouths, their ears. The massive black cyborg sat down upon the throne, and the durochrome plate skulls groaned in undying agony. The armored eyelids of the Overqueen flicked open, revealing the intact eye. The other ripped free by the armored gauntlet. It groaned, a sound that shivered every soul on the face of the planet. It squealed. Not in rage, but in pain remembered and inflicted. He is seated, Bologna rejoiced, as Osiris of the war steel flame mastered, dominated, and overwhelmed the mantid overqueen. The figure on the throne gave no hint as to the struggle, the task it undertook. His mind, bowed by the rekindled rage, reached out, searching one target, and found something else. A small people, recently freed, bravely lifting weapons they barely understood. A million singing spirits of innocent purity, all singing songs of comfort, of warmth in the face of horror. Under threat, a cold intellect covered in cold mucus slime throbbed with hunger. Rage roared even higher as more fuel poured into it. He, they, we, us, had failed before. He, they, we, us, would not fail again. The mind reached out further. 
The battle had been raging for days, feline-featured creature girls clad in heavy power armor swarming a huge mobs, striking each other with signs, shooting acrobats at into the air, screaming that their war cries and their support from the kawaii doki girls, or another over the true meaning of one holy kawaii emojis. They suddenly went still, fingers relaxing on triggers, chainsaws winding down and going silent. They tilted their heads, as if listening to a voice that could not be heard on the dusty windswept plains of a world once swarmed over by a million mantids. As one, they lifted their faces to the sky and cried out, Dweller spawn! <laughs> jokey, jokey, jokey! Have a time! For soft fur and warm love, Kawaii Crusade. Sister Mantissa knelt before the eternal flame, lit from one of the sobbing fires of murdered terror. Her false blade's tip grounded in the cracked manted skull. She recited mantras of forgiveness, of compassion, of holy flame. A whisper reached her, undeniable, irresistible. It whispered of a small group of people, recently unbound by chains, of bravery in the face of the unknown, and gentle love and comfort to all. It whispered of horror. It whispered of Dwellerspawn. Sister Mantissa raised her face to the starless sky, tears running down her face as she heard the bells of the Chapel of Forgiveness ring. A burning crusade in the name of love. High Marshal Lucian knelt in the chapel of lost terror. Her globe made a plasma glass shining with a burning fire taken from lost terror itself's burning inside. He recited his mantras of purity, of restraint, of forgiveness, and he leaned his forehead against the inlaid and engraved force blade, the pommel of a lump of lost glass. He heard it, demanding an enraged roar that demanded obedience. He gave commands, his Omnilink silent for the eons roared to life, filling his mind with combined codexes, with images of soft fur, of fluffy tails, and soothing words to those wounded whose souls had been riven. A dark shadow above a warm fur, cold, unfeeling, all-consuming. A dweller at its dweller spawn. The bells of the chapel began to ring, calling all to arms. The ninth expedition was being called to arm. He lifted his face, tears of joy streaming down his weathered and beaded skin. He calls. Naxa, the wearer of the eight wigs, roared out his fury. Spittle flying from his heavy jaws, he smashed his war axe into the face of a massive packed creature. It fell to the ground, writhing as a sound began. A faint roar of rage, implicatable, unstoppable, dwarfing even his own green fury. For these fellow kawaii boys, he lifted his axe and roared out a single name. Daxon. The dweller spawn had been sighted after eons. Their lives were complete. My galleon compact. What the hell was that? Did anyone else just feel that? Sus. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. 
Cyborg Collective. Sis, ah, you are right. Nothing follows. Tolkien Gestalt. We will not falter. We will not yield. Upraised is our clenched fists for freedom and liberty. Even in the face of darkness and extinction, we cry out. We say to thee, nay, nothing swallow. Manted free three world five. Scream! Scream for us! Scream out the name of the murdered terror and betrayed mantid as you die. The dweller spawn shall feel thou holy wrath. For the lost terror soul and betrayed mantid, we spit our hate at thee. Fudging Sis, disconnect. Sis, disconnect. Disconnect before you drive your people mad. Nothing follows. Terrasol. She is stuck in a feedback loop with her people. I must interfere. Override Delta, Epsilon, Nina Nina, Eight Five Sigma Zero Six Two. Manted free worlds. What? What was that? Nothing follows. Cyborg Collective. Something terrible. Nothing follows. First contact, second wave, chapter 92. Dreams. Dreams sat in a great unified council toward the back, behind even some of the neo-sapient races, which were only allowed to watch their betters go through the motions of ruling their known universe. She howled perfectly still, as unmoving as a statue, feeling her implosion wire tingle as she let her psychic senses spread out over the gathered beings. So many of them were a mere emptiness. The hammerous soon seat was empty. Someone had carved Remember Sandy into the hollow table with a ritual knife that they then stuck almost to the hilt into the table. The maintenance teams had left it in place. The Tolkien seat was empty. They had simply not shown up. Dreams could feel the cracks in the unified species already. The Lanectalan speaking while wearing his sash, third most high of the council, had a mental voice that would best be described as <gasps> to Dreams. That means Dreams squint at the speaker. She queried her data link and compared the current Lanectalan to the one that had spoken only a day prior. Their voice patterns were close, but the secondary and trinary vocal ranges were different. They were slight differences in size and patterns, and the ones speaking stentrals were millimeters shorter. Additionally, the previous day's third highmost leaned back on their left hind hoof when speaking, where this one leaned forward on the right forehoof. Dreams reached out with the psychic senses and touched 117 and told him to rush the most speed to her side to bring a single object to attune it to a specific output. She touched fights and asked her to bring over her overwatches as well as the medical equipment and to contact Wings of Mercy to send the medical evac dropship to the parking lot of the council building. She had a bad feeling. The third high most kept speaking about how the loss of systems by major corporations due to the Terran Confederacy's insistence that the systems attacked by precursors remain under Terran martial law, 
had resulted in almost a hundredth of a percent loss of a percent of the taxes paid by the corporations. He was presenting numbers and charts via faint, flickering holograms that the Unified Council seemed to prefer. Out of curiosity, she bring the prior year's taxes and publicly declared profits and losses for the affected corporations and then compared it to the current publicly declared profits, losses, and taxes. True, many corporations had gone bankrupt due to the lawsuits, emancipations, and the malign glee of the ABIs of the unified judicial system in ruling exactly as the laws had read instead of the spirit of the law which seemed to be the Lanark to land people are always right and always get what they want, which had turned out badly for the Lanark to land corporations. However, Dreams could see that the profits for some corporations were up across the Terran sectors as wages increased, increasing native species buying power due to the Terran Confederacy policy of buy local that the system commanders followed. In other words, what he was saying wasn't true, but the facts he was presenting painted the picture that it was an old political trick. The words kept flowing, repeating the same thing over and over, just slightly different wording, some of the words requiring a moment's thought to get the context, thus hammering in the Lanark to Land's point further. Taxes good, taxes slow because Terrans, Terrans bad. 117 hurried up, his Moslax lunctering in behind him, moving to sit next to Dreams's chair. The Moslax took up the position that he could crush 117 with his ancient weapon should 117 attempt to seize control of the technology to use it to wipe out the entire council chamber. Not that 117 was considering it. For more than a moment or two, Dreams nudged 117 to keep silent watched, and that something was going on. Fights nudged her psychically that they were in the antechamber, just outside the council chamber. The third highmost pole sliding one finger down the side of a data pad to get to the next section, when dreams felt it. A scream, a scream of absolute terror that dwindled slightly, not voiced out loud, but perceptible to dreams regardless. The feel of someone fighting, struggling desperately to no avail as they were dragged down into a prison that they were locked into. Able to see out of it, able to hear out of it, able to feel what went on inside the prison. The Vakunara stood up, holding a device over her head as the voice only dreams could hear screamed even louder. Death to the... She got out. 117 felt the device as the Vaknara, a fair-skinned biped covered with a pale, downy fuzz, began to stand up. His psionic ability strained and honed to a fine edge. Immediately, he smiled out a detonator, being grasped by the Van Kankanar's four-fingered hand. Could feel the wiring, could taste the blasting caps, could hear the singing of the implosion charges covering the Vaknara's waist and belt of the destruction. There were eight charges practically angled and built to direct their power straight at Dreams' seat. Before she was standing, she all the way up, 117 reacted with his Terran marine training, reaching into the unshielded electronics of a data link, jumping to the explosive suicide belts electronics, stilling them, disconnecting them. He felt an odd code surging and twisting in her implant, preventing her from screaming, and shut down the implant for good measure, even as he slapped the device dreams had ordered him to bring onto the floor and triggered it. And a split second before the device went off, the Vaknara was still standing up. Dreams reacted instinctively to the threat. 
She started to lash out at burn away at the back of Ra's mind, but Dreams could still hear the waning scream of protest from deep inside the Vaknara's mind. Instead, she only paralyzed the Vaknara, stunning its motor cortex and interrupting its autonomous systems for long enough to cause her to black out. The personal protective screen spun up instantly, creating a dome of pure energy that looked like an interlocked hexagons. At the same time, as two more voices began screaming for help in Dreams' senses, as the Tanavaru and the Seven Chan both stood up and leveled needler pistols at Dreams. 117 reached out with his data link, jumped the two would-be assassins, and then, at their weapons, he simply turned the weapons off. The two would-be assassins screamed, Death to the Lanark lands! as they pulled the dead triggers, pointing their weapons at Dreams who lifted a blade arm to rest on her chin, even as she reached out with her senses and knocked both out. Both Warborgs were already moving, stepping forward, their eyes flashing to green and then amber, and then finally red as weapons deployed from their back. Heavy-duty APERS shells loaded up in their cannons, and their defensive systems came online. Remain seated, the two Warborgs shouted, Everyone who had started to jump up collapsed back into their seats. Silence! They followed it up. Mouths closed, screams of fear were swallowed. Everyone sat silently, staring at what they had just reminded were massive combat cyborgs, swallowing any words that they had. Dreams almost started giggling at the realization that for the first time in who knows how long a bunch of politicians sat with their mouths closed. She transmitted data to fights on what races had just tried to kill her. Medical personnel started rushing in, heading to Dreams' seat and then stopped, their mouths working. Two dropped their cud to the floor. Do not move! This area is under martial lockdown! The Warbog shouted. Three of the medical personnel ran. Then one fainted. Before the door could close, the russet-colored mantid rushed in, followed by her two escorts. She had three hover cradles in her loaded up with medical profiles of the three beings and their races. She rushed over while everyone stared, pointing out the three beings. Security forces, Lanark the Land, rushed into the council chamber and found themselves staring at the guns of two warborgs with crimson eyes. Dreams felt seas tell her psychically that someone had intended on entering her chambers with the intent of doing some harm, so she had gone out to stand by the planters and steps that had led down to the parking lot and had taken speaks with her. She had already had a ceramic tree in Dreams's quarters carried out and Mr. Rings was hiding in the watery bowler. She, Mr. Rings, and speaks were watching the medevac shuttle landing in the parking lot on the hot drop. The Lanarktalans looked to see Dream sitting smugly inside the dome, interlocked hexagons, and reached for their weapons. 117 jumped from his implants to theirs, decrypting the pathetically weak armor codes, jumping to the computers that ran the armor, shut off their armor and weapons, then turned off the atmosphere with almost a malicious glee. He then overloaded their implants, burning them, and then turned them off. He could see the six Lanarktalans start to panic through the clear armor blasts of their visors and flashed a half-dozen icons that translated into, Ha <laughs> ha, you suck. Fights was having each would-be assassin loaded up into med cradles, putting them into stasis so deep that all cellular activity was ceased. She signaled to Dreams that she had them. 
Dreams had just finished ordering the forces at the spaceport to recall the shuttle and lift off. 117 sent commands to the electronics in the diplomatic quarters to reboot, wipe, and leave behind the malevolent B.I. slicer boys in the memory, hiding under the supposed diplomatic notes. The lawyers, Johnson, Jackson, and Johnston, were not worried. Should something happen to them, their law firms would sue the entire council until they had to use handfuls of dirt to pay off their debts. They and their assistants moved slowly and confidently towards the limo that would take them to the spaceport, filing lawsuits and legal briefings as they went. Almost every being fled from the grey-skinned bipeds as they slowly moved to their limo. At the spaceport, a Talcan male, a ticket home in his hand, ran up and hugged one of the lawyers before racing off to board his flight home with his wife and brood carriers. The lawyers felt a tingle of malicious pleasure at how much the Talcan's happiness hurt the Lanicklands watching from hiding. Dreams watched fights leave with patience and motioned 117 with the blade arm she was not resting on her chin. 117 turned off the protective barrier, his eyes on the Lanicklands security guards who were gasping, foaming at jowls even if the others tried to get their armor off. Well now, this is exciting... Dreams said slowly. She motioned and the warborgs moved back up behind her, their eyes going to amber. I wonder who'd want to kill little old me. She lifted up the chrome domicile chain and swung it slowly back and forth. She held the flick knife and pressed the chrome stud. The blade swung out and locked into place with an audible click, the steel blade gleaming softly in the lights of the chamber. Should I assume, third and most high, that negotiations between the Confederacy and its august body have broken down and you wish the diplomats of the Terran Confederacy to leave the planet? Dreams asked, rubbing one blade arm along the side of her face. The Lanicklan gaped at her, mouth opening and closing silently. Oh, wait, you're not the third high most. You're a double, a stand-in that was sent here to get blown up and create an artificial justification for attacking terror, Dream said, her voice still thick with amusement. The third high most just gaped while the others slowly turned around to face Dream's looks of shock on their faces. Did you really think that my people, much less the Terrans, would not be prepared for combative diplomacy? Dreams laughed. You were willing to kill everyone in the chamber to try and pin the blame on my people. Try D cameras, which had been the entire thing happen, swooped in to get the better look, unaware of 117 examining every bit of their circuitry. Dreams knew the entire planet and beyond was watching. To quote my fellow diplomat speaks with words we fear. You do not know with whom you are fricking with, Dreams said, her voice suddenly serious as the chain stopped swinging. We are the Terran Confederacy of Aligned Systems. We have known defeat, but we have never been beaten. This is not a war you wanted, nor is it a war we have sought. Dream said softly, my people once thought the Terrans easy prey. We struck as we always did, in the theory of eliminate the Queen and the High Falls. By striking their home planet, by glassing large portions of it, Dreams paused for a moment, swinging her chain again. And we pay dearly for it, as you shall pay dearly if you pursue this war you think you want. She paused, suddenly going still. 
She was still in a long time and some council members began murmuring to one another when she shuddered several times. Woe unto you in the name of warmth and love. Dream suddenly shrieked. She made a sharp motion and 117 jumped on her back. She scurried towards the door where the rest of her security detail was waiting. 117 jumped from her to one of the warborgs, double-checking the status of all his war gear. Satisfied, he jumped to the back of the second one, sliding his cybernetic blade arms into the slots built for such. The warborgs moved, one in front, one in the back, their weapons tracking everyone in the room who had so much as twitched. Perverse ones! 117 flashed over a hundred icons in a few seconds. What you have done is obscene, and the Terran Confederacy shall bring such wrath that even in hell, your suffering shall be legendary. Dreams shrieked out as she approached the door. 117 touched the door panel and shorted out the entire building's computer network, packed up the toilets, programmed the hollow emitters to display the Terran mail wreathed in fire, reset all the clocks, and bricked the food dispensers. Dreams paused for a moment at the door, looking at the Lanarktalans inside. She pointed one blade arm at the dead Lanarktalan in security armor. Yees are just the first. Terror goes to war! Not against the precursors, but against the obscenity you have unleashed upon the Talcans and undoubtedly mean to unleash on twenty-nine other worlds. Dream snarled. Bothers, when we have proof, we shall land the mechanics of the twenty-nine palms upon your homeworld in fire and fury. A curse upon thee for the vile obscenity you have revealed yourselves to be masters of. I curse thee, vile ones. The door closed behind dreams and the council chamber erupted into yelling and accusations. Dreams sat on a comfortable seat, petting Mr. Rings as she watched the planet recede. This is going to be mad, I just know, Speaks said softly. That's why we're going to the homeworlds of each of the would-be assassins, Dreams said, her voice quiet as she gently was petting Mr. Rings, whose colored was bright blue around his eyes and his tentacles. I don't understand that part, Speaks asked, rubbing the blade arms together. They did something to those three, some kind of suppression, and I have a feeling that it isn't only thing that they've done to them, Dreams answered. She shuddered with the memory of how the Gestalt had screamed and raved. Are you okay? Speaks nodded slowly. Yeah, you, you were raving at them. I think you even tried to lay a curse on them where at the end... Dreams held up her blade arms in a sign of yes and no and sighed. It took everything I had to not just start killing every Lanarktalan I saw. There is no proof that they're the ones who did it. Just circumstantial evidence, and I don't want to commit a confederacy to the war that's circumstantial proof. This rage is easing up. How is Seas? Speak asked. Resting, she's trained to handle such things. Fights was touched and go for a while. Her implosion wire almost went off when she started computing what she'd need for a bioweapon. That would wipe out the entirety of the Lanarktalans. But she got it under control, Dreams told the Black Manted. 117 was going to detonate the Spaceport's fusion reactor, but it got his instincts under control. This is going to be really bad. I mean it, Speaks repeated. Dreams looked over to him. Are you a seer now? Your chitin is a bit dark for prophecy. Speaks rubbed his blade arms together again. 
Terra hasn't been challenged, hasn't been actually threatened, truly, in a couple thousand years, yet they still worry that something's going to jump out and stab them in the back. There's been a couple wars, hell, there's been one or two major ones, but they don't realize how hilariously outclassed most of their opponents really are. Speaks said slowly, these Lanark lands, the unified civilized species group, they're going to do something stupid. We're talking as stupid as when we glassed Terra. I just know it. Dreams didn't scoff. She just waited patiently. How do you know? Because the Lanark lands haven't been challenged in a hundred million years. Every species they have met, they've dominated and docile and domesticated before the other species even knew that they were in danger. Success for that long, for that many million years, that breeds arrogance and the feeling that they can never be beaten. Hell, when you get right down to it, we didn't beat them. A species, a civilization like that, they don't think anything can threaten them. Dreams shivered. You think they'll end up one percent? Speaks shook his head. No, I think they'll end up xenocided. There's trillions of them, nearly a hundred trillion, Dreams said. And the Confederacy has enough bullets for them all, Speaks answered. Mark my words, the words I speak you fear to hear. The Lanarktalan will put a muzzle of a gun into their own mouth while strangling a human child and think that the Terrans don't have the will to pull the trigger. In the odd hive worlds. Are you okay now, sis? You were touch and go there for a moment. Manted free worlds. Yeah, remind me to thank Terrasol for stepping in. That was a serious feedback loop. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. What could even cause that? We cannot deduce what may have even caused such an event. Manted free worlds. I have no idea. It was like if a human suddenly sprouted over Queen Antenna and locked into the psychic wave and started hammering with his Terran rage. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Directorate. There hasn't been a psychic Terran. Well, not one that could do much more than empathy since the Great Glassing. They're all probably mixed with the sleeping ones now. If there's anyone who survived, it's pretty much gone from the genome and nobody has really been interested in adding it back in. There's almost a revulsion to it. It couldn't have been a psychic Terran. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. I know. That's why I can't figure out. Maybe a gestalt glitch? Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems? No way. I checked. They came from your people, hit you, looped back into them, and started increasing in strength. The signal in the middle that wasn't manted, that was Terran. I checked the records. I've got nothing like it. Well, not quite. There were signals like that back during the fall of the Imperium of Rage, when the whole space ripped open but nothing matching the signal and nothing that ever affected the mantids. Nothing follows. Mantid free worlds. We don't really know what went on in the Hull Space Rift. Most of the records were lost by the collapse of the Imperium of Rage. I know there was some serious fighting out that way, but then it ended up full of idiots and we don't know what happened. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. Sis, what would happen if the Terrans got onto the psychic wavelength of the Mantids? Aren't most Terrans descent humans a snarling ball of rage and violence to your senses? Nothing follows. Mantid free worlds. 
We'd feel it, but it would be alien. We could block it out. This couldn't have been a Terran. It was an overqueen of some type, but they're extinct. Nothing follows. Falcon Gestalt. Two-hour warning. Proceed to shelters. Two-hour warning. Proceed to shelters. Two-hour warning. Proceed to shelters. Guys, I'm afraid. Shh, potlings. Shh, brood mommy. Hold, brood mommy. Sing. Shh, potlings safe. Potlings warm. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. We'll be right there, dear one. Reinforcements are on the way. Come here, and I'll hug you. Nothing follows. Trenard hive worlds. You know, there was that Omni Queen signal last year. Maybe they had something to do with it. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. I hope not. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact, second wave, chapter 93. 626 enjoyed his work. Before the Terrans had freed his cast from the tyranny of the Queens, he would have been locked inside his own mind, screaming as he performed the menial maintenance tasks at the direction of others and with another skill rather than his own. 626 could imagine no worse fate. He closed any tiny access hatch at the back of the mechanic and jumped out into the wall, reoriented himself and jumped onto the back of the next mechanic, a vestigial wing fluttering to give him a little aerodynamic boost. The one he had just finished working on, Gunnery Sergeant Hunterston, jerked slightly as his brain finished syncing up with the war gear loaded body. Hunterson flashed 66 an icon of appreciation even as the little green mantid opened up the small panel. His next job, Sergeant Stoner, was waiting for his war gear to be checked out. He was having problems with his left side being tingly and his weapons losing sync. 626 ran the standard diagnostics, saw nothing wrong, ran deep diagnostics, saw nothing wrong, then remembered his lessons in percussive maintenance and ran a physical check on the most problematic piece of hardware. The brain case was 0.21 millimeters from full seating on the left-hand side. 626 held on with his grasping hands and jumped on it, activating the graviton focuses on his little boots, and slammed onto the brain case with 22.32 kilograms of pulse. Hey! the mechanic yelled. Oh, never mind. Thanks, 626. Getting green lights all across the board. Having the ancient war cart of Triumph of Steel, 626 slapped the hatch shut, locked it, and jumped on the wall and then to the next customer. A lance corporal whose primary cannon array wasn't deploying correctly. Still humming to himself, 626 kept working. Landfall was in an estimated five hours and he had many human warborgs to run diagnostics on. Whispers in the silent spaces flew on the back of a butterfly, watching the waving flowers around her as the butterfly moved from one space to another. Here, the landscape was littered with dead warborgs being torn apart with biomechanical creatures. There, the world was barren, removed to rock, and the atmosphere siphoned away. Great creatures slowly moving away from the planet. Over there was a system full of debris, ships, biological remnants, shattered warborgs, crushed creatures, smashed warmecks. Whispers looked about. There! Damaged and broken warborgs, but brood carriers basking in the sunshine, holding potlings. She tilted her butterfly, moving closer to that outcome. In defeat could lie in the seeds of victory. 
The three military intelligence officers watched the iridescent mantis shudder and quiver as her psychic senses reached out to try and define the future of an entire planet. It might be of use, it might be difficult to understand, but the seers were never wrong. That made them a weapon, and Terra never passed up the chance to grab any weapon that might bring victory to a fight. The transport slammed down, side slamming down, and the armored vehicles roaring out amongst the debris of the precursor of war that had ended only a year ago. APCs full of armored troops that immediately swarmed to the concealed and prestigated fighting positions. Heavy weapons were dragged out, armored troop carrier boxes of ammunition, positive pressure systems were put in place, medical stations were activated deep in the hand-stripped hulls of the precursor machines. Vuxton climbed up from the side of a precursor machine that had been gutted by close-range plasma cannon blasts. His squad followed him. He had a 20mm magac heavy machine gun magnetically attached to the back of his armor, but the strength assist in the armor made it so that the weight was noticeably but easily worked through. When he got to the top, he looked around. There was a shadow of the crater in the armor by the edge. He made two quick chopping motions as he highlighted the crater and marked it with his armor's visor. He dropped the 20mm magak and ordered the squad leader to set up right here, and jogged over to the crater in the center. The squad leader from the second squad had already started to deploy the stealth shielding and setting up at the point defense squad gun. Buxton, do you read? The icon said that it was Lieutenant Archibald Tick-Tick-Tick Jones. Buxton, yes, sir. He replied, flashing an icon as his two squads to let him know that he was on the radio. I'm sending you three air defense vehicles. That's your AO. So put them in places that can interlock and support each other. The enemy appears to be biological, and Millint believes that they will be vulnerable during the planetary atmospheric entry, the lieutenant said. I'll also be sending out four schools of attack defense fish boys and their coral stations. Try to find good locations for them to stage combat actions from. Yes, sir. I'll scout out the areas right away, Buxton answered. Jones out, the lieutenant said, his icon going red. Buxton just transmitted his icon and started scanning the area. He opened up a channel for his two squads. Command thinks air defense will be priority in the early stages. Reconfigure your shoulder cannons to air defense and point defense. The icons all flashed, letting him know that they'd heard him as he jumped, using assist, across the gap to the large downed precursor. He climbed up the side and then walked around the edge, looking around the field of destroyed machines. There were four good points. He registered all four with command and went back to where his two squads were still setting up. First beakers is now some kind of creature from outer space. Buxton sighed. All these people wanted was to coexist freely. Why was that so hard? I have Unit XXXTCSF7860CNG of the line. I am a fully operational, super-heavy main battle tank of the Terran Confederacy Space Force, designed to protect humanity and its allies. While the Dinochrome Brigade may be defeated, it has never been beaten. For the honor of the regiment, I will carry out my duty. 
The words echoed in my mind as I moved from maintenance mode to full awareness. In the last battle against the precursor enemy, I was gravely damaged in combat when a precursor machine computed that the best course of action was to land its twelve mile across bulk upon me. I had been unable to fight my way free, but sustained serious damage. I ran diagnostics, taking 1.5 seconds to fully receive and analyze all the data. My 250mm hellbore has been improved by a factor of 1.423%. A modification, I can tell, was performed by a mantid engineer cast workers repairing my systems. While they are once the enemy, they are now valued members of the Confederacy, and I appreciate their work on my behalf. My infinite repeaters are ready, the kinetic ones fully loaded, the energy ones ready to engage the enemy. My mortar tubes are calibrated with magazines fully loaded. My vertical launch missile systems are at 100%. My point defenses and air defense systems are fully interlocked with my sensors and targeting systems. My APERS have been increased by 120% and I have additional sensors and computing power dedicated to close-range point defense. My armor is at 100% and additional ablative armor and reactive armor added. My treads are in excellent condition with the near-perfect tension. More evidence of an engineer cast mantid work as even maintenance depot machines usually only manage to reach 97% tension. I am ready for battle. All I need now is my commander. It is less than 0.25 seconds after that thought that I feel the presence of a human mind unfolding next to me, reaching out to me. My commander is in the command couch, locked in and strapped down, the cybernetic linkage fully plugged into the brainstem. Morning, Carnage. How are you feeling? The human commander, one Captain Gouge, asked me. I'm in optimal levels, I tell him. I feel laser pulses through my memory as the battle reflex system comes fully online. Let's wake you up a bit, old boy, Captain Gouch says. My mind expands as I take in the entire situation. Unknown enemies have entered the system, heading straight for the planets within the green zone. The major biological entities have deployed parasite drone units of unknown type. Well, the larger one had slowed down, changing its ETA to 11 days. Some of the smaller units, barely detectable by scanners of dedicated observation vessels, will still be coming in at high speeds on an angle to take them into the re-entry course within hours. I request permission from my commander, the gestalt between the two of us not quite complete, in milliseconds lag absorbing the situational data and full linkage. He grants it, and I use hyperpulse millimetric wave scanners to examine the inverted cone between the largest biological structure and the planet. Hundreds of smaller biological entities, barely detectable by my scanners, were sleeting towards the planet. I share my information across the brigade's tactical data net and receive information in return. Unit JWS, a.k.a. Jaws, has been fully awake for the entire time and updates all of us on even more information. The Space Force Navy would be engaging on the oncoming objects in the next 20 minutes. Jaws, our brigade commander, has already computed the most effective pattern for us to perform air defenses with mid-orbital support. My commander, fully integrated with me, glances at the pattern and agrees. 
It seems odd to me. We are going to be stationed seems 4% suboptimal to me, but my commander sees it as perfectly optimal. The gestalt is complete, and I am now gauge carnage. I can now see around me. I'm in the maintenance depot, scaffolding having fallen away. The door is fully open, locking into place with a boom. The light goes out from amber to green, signaling that I'm allowed to move out from the maintenance depot and to carry out my mission. I engage my drive systems and my commander and I move out into the early morning darkness. The ground rumbles as 25,000 tons of war steel and durochrome rumbled out on the hardened underground maintenance shelter. The bolos were on the move. Katofen 773C24 opened his eyes, blinking for a moment to let his mind catch up with his body. He was clad in pressurized flight suit, his visor closed, liquid atmosphere moving through the tube implanted in his chest. He could feel that his body was unfinished, mostly existing as a life support system for his brain, but he also knew that it didn't matter. He tabbed ready and waited, closing his eyes and sinking into the craft systems. He had 60 high-speed data drones, 50 slower wide-scanning drones, 8 gun drones, 12 missile pods, and 20 blanks with mission-configurable systems. His main pod was ready and had 5 hours of life support. He double-checked his quantum link and nodded mentally when it glowed green. He had had to come into battle with a red dot suds before. He didn't like it, but needs must. The light went green and Ricky kicked the massive almond-shaped craft's launch pedal. The carrier's magnetic launch system fired him out silently. No traces, and he waited till he was nearly a hundred miles before hitting the string drive, going full stealth. The cloud of smaller signals, that would be the first thing he passed through. He'd gather as much data as he flew through. His real goal was the second wave of signals, the ones showing signs of using reactionless drive systems to slow down so their planetary interception would be delayed. He kept his acceleration low as to not make any gravity impressions or show any energy signatures, trusting in his stealth systems as he sped towards the incoming boat traces. The pods were silent, the scanning and combat VIs asleep in their hash cradles. In less than an hour, he was picked up data. The moats were only a few hundred meters wide, hard shells that were a form of biological ablative armor. The insides were either tightly packed powder or liquid in some form, with the inner shell having vents. Atmosphere attack spheres. He could feel the clicking of the quantum computer under his tongue, a phantom sensation unique to his genetic lineage, a minor thing that did not need correction but had been logged with the Clone World's genomic authority. He kept the signal to noise ratio down, cutting off even most of the internal systems as he swept through the cloud. His angle of approach designed to keep him from intersecting any closer than a full kilometer away from the moats. He swept into the space again and ran a check on the surface to ensure that he had not picked up any guests. His hull was clean. His external hatches were all still sealed. The next wave was inside a blaze of spheres of liquid layer biological shock dampeners. He checked the readouts. Whatever was inside was soft, spongy sphere inside the object would be able to survive a 15G shock without feeling much more than a 0.04G shock. Landing troops. 
He swept on, activating his string drive to clear through the empty space. He kept the speed down to avoid any temporal ripples. Nothing would show him quicker to an enemy than a fourth dimensional scanner's by moving fast enough to leave a wake trail in the temporal foam. The next layer he was able to detect was subspace drives, STL drives that did not respond on reaction mass. The sine wave was strange, different than what was loaded in his EEPROM database. It was time. Ricky opened his eyes, not to look at the blank featureless inside of his pod, but instead to deploy his scanners. While sensor nets deployed from his pod, hatches opened in a hull and his drone control pod, letting his parasite pods eject free and spin up their systems. His drone spread out around him, the VIs waking up and stretching, mumbling at first, then gibbering at one another. The gun boys and the other war boys were excited at the target-rich environment. He was already getting returns. Some of them were looked like wasps' nests with turbarous and cancerous growths on them. Others looked like ovoid lumps of cancerous tissue. All of them had red and lime-green phosphorus lighting up. Ricky could feel the lumps reaching out towards him, radar, lidar, and other systems scanning him. Ricky knew that he wouldn't appear as human. Humans had legs and arms, ribcages and spines. It was a blob of organs, veins, nerves, and a minimal supporting tissue. Ricky knew how this would go, part of him thrilled to what was going to happen. The eight nearest wasp nests suddenly disgorged what looked like insects. The sonar sails looked like wings at the crest, and they were lit up with the red light from bioluminescence. They had grasping claws and large jaws, with what looked like tubers on the backs and underneath them. Ricky disgorged the missiles at them. They immediately vomited red liquid and slowed, the liquid expanding out in a five-mile disc in front of them within 1.2 seconds. Ricky scanned his own missiles as they plunged through the disc. Immediately started melting, now fast enough to stop them from orienting and detonating, slashing at the insects with X-ray lasers, particle beams, and graviton hammers. The wasps used their wings to intercept as many of the lasers as they could, the energy draining into them and making the red light grow brighter. The particle beams were absorbed even when they hit the skin. The graviton hammers blew large chunks out of them, shattering the insects into tumbling parts. Ricky targeted four of the insects with nothing but X-ray laser missiles with maximum output, 10 for one, 20 for another, 30 for the third, and 40 for the last, using up two missile pods worth of ammo, ordering the pods to reconfigure for kinetic attack. The 22nd hit something, and the wasp gave out, and it exploded, but not before the X-ray lasers tore massive holes in its wings. The two pods of kinetic attacks blew apart the two insects that they targeted. Ricky was taking return attacks now, his senses running hard, one of the cancerous tubers rupturing to reveal an octlet of six-winged creatures with two heads and massive jaws dripping with plasma. Their attacks were mainly vomited up blobs of glowing liquid. Ricky hit them with dead missiles to get the rate of decay and materials making up the missiles. Before they could deplete his parasite pods or do much more than cosmetic damage to his primary control pod, he was through their ranks. There had been hundreds of thousands of them, maybe millions. The next rank was coming up. 
massive creatures, most of them unrolling tentacles. He had a third of his sensor pods left with a handful of weapon pods. He reconfigured them for graviton hammer attacks and oriented his command pod on the largest one. It looked like a snail that had grown fully with writhing tentacles and cassidia. He didn't care about the missile's actual damage. He was testing the structural integrity of the armor, the blast patterns, and how it cracked the spalling pattern. Ricky had two sensor pods that had ran out of ammo. There was one last check. Ricky loved this part. He reached out his tailbone nerves and pressed the button. The massive C-plus cannon bolt into the pod fired. Ricky himself inverted, exploding outwards in a shower of neutrons, electrons, protons broken apart by atomic bombs. The last two sensor pods watched as the C-plus slug hit one of the larger of the third ring dead center, blowing through it, the entire front side liquefying and pooling inwards, the inside spraying out as the back of the kinetic shockwave slammed through it. Two others moved in, reaching out, both grabbing it and tearing it to pieces. The sensor pods were almost out of reactor mass. They reconfigured and fired themselves through the two cannibalizing their companion. Richtofen 773C24 opened his eyes, blinking for a moment and let his mind catch up to his body. He had been a good runner, full of data. Time to get close in by the fourth rung and beyond. In the next six hours, he knew he'd been reskinned into a fighter craft, and he'd have the data that he'd gathered and made his close attacks runs. The corners of his lipless, unfinished mouth twitched into a smile. Clone War Life! Brentelik looked up from her data pad. One hundred percent of Talcan non-combatants are in shelters, she said. Not all, Colonel Harvey said. One hundred percent of non-essential, non-combat personnel are in shelters, Brentlick corrected, staring up at the human with wide-eyed defiant pose of the little people. And if I order that warborg to pick you up and carry you to the master shelter, Harvey said, I'll bite him, Brentlick warned. To his credit, the eight-ton war-steel full-conversion cyborg did not snicker. Just for clarification, Director Brentelek, when I enter the shelter, do you intend to? The colonel asked. Why would you enter the shelter? Brentelek asked. Are you not in the Space Force Army? Are you not needed on the battlefield? Colonel Harvey shook his head. My dear Director Brentelek, I would like nothing more than to grab a rifle, jump in a suit of robotic power armor, and go out bravely to defend our little slice of heaven. But when I attained this rank and was assigned to this post, I lost that privilege. When ground combat begins, all the enemy attains their superiority. I'll enter the shelter as I am no longer a part of the kinetic combat variable. Brentelik frowned, thinking of her husband wrapped in Terran-designed power armor out there while the Terran military officer was talking about retreating to the bunker like a Lanark Lan. Then what is your job? To coordinate military response when you alert me that there are shelters in danger. To coordinate defense of 12 million Talcan people and their allies in my area of operations. While I spent my youth striding across planets in robotic power armor capable of wading through a skyscraper, my own ambition for rank has proved my martial undoing, the colonel said. 
With my rank comes responsibility, which will be assisting that men like your husband get proper orders, that intelligence and command receives constant updates on the status of our area of operations. He turned and looked at her, and Brentlock had to resist the urge to duck under the desk in fire in his eyes that seemed to her to be brighter than the amber lights of the Warborg's eyes. Do I want to enter the shelter, Director Brentlock? No. I want to get in a set of Nova Star Power Armor or Pacifarum class robot, Power Armor, and take the fight to the enemy, first to face. Instead, I'll be by the digital Omnimusai and his twelve biological disciples, do my duty and enter the shelter to facilitate command and control with the best data that I can in order to ensure that men like your husband do not have their lives thrown away, and that every brood carrier and partling in the shelters is defended to the best ability of the Terran Confederate Space Force. The colonel said, Brentlek nodded, swallowing thickly. I mean, no offense, Colonel Harvey. The fire in the human's eyes dimmed. I know you didn't, kid. He moved over to the table, staring down at it. The Ostkaran River Power Generation Station handles the power needs for six shelters, but I believe that we should move power armor power calls to the reactor base of those shelters to act as backup and cut the links to the dam. That will result in them having less power, Brentlek stated. The colonel looked at the clock. We have two hours before the first wave arrives. He looked back at the map. I am going to order the engineers to collapse all tunnels and pipes in or out of the shelters and order security to go incursion imminent in all shelters. Brentlick nodded. Before the precursor attack, she would have protested, worrying about the brood carriers. Now she knew it was better the brood carriers be concerned and possibly stressed than slaughtered in mass. I agree, she stated. Manted free worlds. Well, we've officially withdrawn our diplomatic envoys to the unified civilized councils. Nothing follows. Trianard hive worlds. Good. Frick those cone-stealing ambulatory lamburgers. Nothing follows. Clone worlds directorate. Wow. Really? Nothing follows. Trianad Hive Worlds. What? Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Directorate. Nothing. Never mind. Nothing follows. Talsleg Necklet. Safe, warm, safe, warm, safe, warm. Sing now, bottling, sing now with brood, mommy. One and one is two, and two is four, and three and six is six, and circle, neat, triangle, bunny, square. This is blue, and this is green, and this is yellow, and this is yummy, and this is not, and this is icky, and this is yum, and this good podling sing, podling learn, podling smart, podling brave, podling safe, warm, safe, warm, swell off Glenninton, Trenard Highworlds, hey, although the brew carriers don't have data links, how come we keep hearing them singing, nothing follows, Tolkien Gestalt, Sorry about that. Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Directorate. No, 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 it's okay. Just interesting. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. It's a feedback. We have examined it. We have determined that there is some kind of feedback going on. 
One of us is broadcasting Talcan species sex threes members' songs into the stealth chat unintentionally. We are attempting to determine who is providing this feedback and why so as to clear any static unintentional broadcasts into chat during extremely critical time period. Nothing follows. Trinad Highworlds. Anyone understand any of that? Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. Robot people fix chat. Nothing follows. Trina ad high worlds. Thanks. Nothing follows. Rogalian compact. The interesting thing will be if these guys follow the Lanark land protocol of retreating after 10% resource consumption. If so, it's another data point that suggests Lanark land are behind this. Nothing follows. Clone world directorate. I hate to say this, but with a biologically based enemy like this, I'm going to have to call a vote later. Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. A vote. For what? Nothing follows. Clone World's directorate. Moving a genome cracker fleet out there. We're going to need all the data we can get. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. Yeah, we're going to need the data. We'll join you with the biomass fleet. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Are you too crazy? Nothing follows. Tranad Highworlds. Ah, uh, that makes me really nervous just thinking about it. Nothing follows. Acklegakestalt. Hello. Nothing follows. Tranad Highworlds. Ah, holy crap, you scared me. Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. I don't know about letting you move the genome cracker feet out there. I mean, um... Terran Confederacy, Clone World's Directorate Suggestion Approved, Biological Artificial Sentient System Suggestion Approved, Prepare for Immediate Deployment to Warzone Alpha. Trinidad Highworlds, Gah, are you guys trying to give me a heart attack across all three hearts? Nothing follows. Alcat Gestalt, Hello. Nothing Pharaohs. Manted Free World, Hello little one, Welcome. You guys be quiet. Let me help her get to her feet under her. Nothing follows. I'll clack this dealt UV cops en route. It, 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 will, it will be done. 3TA102 hours. End message. Mandate free worlds. Oh dear. Come here, sweetie. End of chapter. First contact, second wave. Chapter 94. Petty Officer Jones, 883E18, moved with the rest of his pod across the Talcan II Ocean, servicing briefly to take a breath and then back down into the water. The first impacts were up ahead, slashing into the water. Filters online, people, moving up on thing, Jones clicked. Biofilter shields on. His pod clicked in their response as Jones brought his own biofield shields up the energy shield designed to destroy microbial or viral life down to prions while letting the water flow through. Jones's pod was by a warfare scouts. They had been scouring around the destroyed precursor craft that had landed in the oceans, making sure that no precursor had released bioweapons into the water. They were already outfitted to find foreign, viral, or microbial life and the switch from possible precursor infection to whatever was coming in from the outer system was within tolerances. Reduce cavitation, Jones ordered. Thrusters at 30%, prepare to release if necessary. 
the pod dropped from 150 knots down to 45 knots, lowering the power to water drives attached to the combat scout harnesses. Prepare sneak drives, Jones ordered. The pod of dolphins flexed muscles, opening up the caterpillar drives built into their bodies by keeping the puckered sphincter muscles closed. Thrusters to zero, Jones ordered. He sent out a high-pitched pulse back to the Miller metric wave sonar pulse with a tight enough bandwidth to pick up microscopes. Caterpillar drives at 10% by filters on. The pod slowed down, their shields glimmering as they reached the leading edge of the impact area. It was slowed, moving forward, planetary rotation as well as a widening semicircle leading to the edge of the cone of approaching spheres. Surface to document, Jones ordered. Three of his pod were set up for atmospheric examination and recording, including real-time debris, spectrographic analysis and recording. They moved rigidly, their muscles locked and keeping them on the least acoustic profile. Let the caterpillar drives propel them even without the whisper. They surfaced and gave alert clicks. The sky was full of streaks of fire and having the intruders burn through the atmosphere, leaving behind ring-like puffs of debris as they fell. Need high-scan lots of incoming. Seaman Tracy 836F86 clicked. Do it. Lots of biomass incoming, Jones answered. It's coming into the water. The three dolphins ran heavy scans, running scans as hard and as long as they could as the objects fell from the sky, puffing out smaller capsules that deployed tilted wings and let the capsule slow its descent as it spun. P.O. Jones, booth 318-D98 squealed, many, many spraying at 100 meters and 50 meters. Secondary deployment, Tracy clicked, capsule bombs. Jones ordered the two sweepers to get to work. The dolphins brought up their personal skin shields and dropped their biofields, activating the biomass recorders. They swept through the water, watching the levels of their biomass collectors rise quickly. Altered algae, standard ocean microorganisms under attack by sneak viruses designed to penetrate and alter the organism. Permission to open gene cracker, Ultima 529B72 requested. Negative, Jones said. Collection only. Gene cracker and biomass fleet support incoming. Not in time, Jones. Shirley 3818-52 sniped. We should have a genome cracker support coming into this. We are only a genome cracker or biomass unit. Let me check with command, Shirley, Jones answered. He surfaced and oriented his sat link, swapping codes and opening the link. It took a minute and Jones could feel the amount of data moving through the air for a long moment. 20251, go ahead, Jones, came the gene control. Permission to open genome cracker warfare packages, Jones sent back. He hated the data link at the time. It had made him sound like he had squeech impediment. Negative. Upon return, genome cracker will be opened. Control answered. Get the data and get the hell out. There's something weird going on. Roger, Jones out. The uplifted dolphin answered and changed channels, taking a deep breath and submerging again. Get data. We go back at to do the genome cracking at base. Watching the stuff change, we have the biomass cells attacking existing cells, changing to stem cells. Ultima said, building blocks to make other things extinction attack. Low speed collection sweep, then back, getting thick out here, Jones said. Many, many incoming, Booth clicked, diving. 
A few more minutes passed as the dolphins collected up more data. The cells were beginning to clump up, shifting their purpose. Ultima swept through some of them and noted how much the new cells package looked like modified algae. Finally, Jones called the retreat, pinging their destination. Jones had them abandon stealth and run straight for the bay at flank speed, risking overheating the jet propulsion systems. It took three hours. Once Jones ordered the cooldown of the engines by diving deep into the surface of the shadow curves, the rotation of the planet and the speed of the wave front meant that more and more were coming down. Wasted time, Jones. Charlie, A37A83, panted as they surfaced for a minute. Ocean being seeded, might need biomass control soon. Biomass fleet en route, Jones answered. From the Clone Worlds takes months longer, time for more biomass altered harder to undo, Charlie said. He took a deep breath and dived sharp to get his turbochargers into the cooler, deeper water to cool them. Going to need Alvin Queens, Jones, Shirley said, clicking a snort in the end. Go to O2 Filters, Jones ordered, less than 75 miles from the harbor. He didn't want his people surfacing, inhaling, then sucking in a long pull of the spores in the air. The rest of the dolphins clicked in annoyance, but they knew that he was right. The spores and the other biomatter raining from the sky definitely was designed to attack the other cells. Usually the dolphins would have surfaced in the bay, dancing across the water to stretch and relax, but the bay was being sleeted with debris exploding out from the space debris. Instead, they went through the locks waiting as their collection and analysis gear was removed. Team needs isolation, 72 hours, Jones ordered. Come on, Jones, Shirley tried. No, risk too high, Jones snapped back. He blew bubbles into the water and then surfaced for a breath. Alien cellular attack on the planet could affect us. The others clicked their doubt but went with it. Jones was the pod leader after all. Jaws Andrea detected the incoming sleet of initial orbital bombardment and computed the trajectory patterns in tenths of a second. The banks of infinite repeaters went to maximum as he raked over the sky. Just beyond his ability to perform air interdiction, Serge James opened up, meshing his anti-air capabilities with Jaws Andrea. The enemy is attempting to land biomass attack weapons in both ground and sea theaters. I use directed energy rather than kinetic, both due to ammunition conservation and the use of directed energy to sterilize the path of the weapon as well as the target. I primarily move the high-impulse laser weaponry, holding back on the variable frequency option, as well as plasma weaponry for shorter-range targets with more mass. Ion and kinetic infinite repeaters are held back due to lesser effect. I compute a 93% chance that the Dynachrome Brigade will be able to eliminate over 75% of the landmass-targeted biomass munitions will be destroyed with a corresponding drop in efficiency with a higher percentage of interceptions. The biomass fleet is increasing in thickness and I alert the air defense units nearby via BATAC-NET to direct their fire. 382 seconds later, fuel air charges begin to erupt in the middle of the atmosphere. Secondary armaments crack open the thicker armored biomass delivery system so that the lighter armored delivery systems can be destroyed by the fuel air charges. Navy vessels are maneuvering to intercept the larger organisms. 
I compute a 98% chance that the enemy did not expect nor had they planned for armed human ships in the system and rather are designed to attack defenseless worlds. I log a suggestion that all Talcan native life forms in shelters have additional biomass filter screens as a probability line of attack would be at the Talcan life forms. Smalls have begun landing and my battle screens hiss with the constant downpour. Kratos Bands reports the incoming biomass in the area has increased due to the vagrancy in the upper atmosphere air currents and very punch shifts position by 11.2 kilometers in order to provide additional support. Very punch has their area of operations under control. It'll be some 15 hours until the initial attack is followed immediately by the larger landing units. These containing living life forms, the data gained by the Clone World troops, disposable troops, has provided invaluable, although the part of me questions the ethical considerations of the Clone Worlds use until destruction methods. I cannot deny that it is effective. Thunder of the guns picked up as the bolos went to maximum fire on the closer-range infinite repeaters. Point defense units began engaging, linking in with the Bolo fire plan. Warborgs meshed in and reconfigured their attack weaponry and joined in on the interlocking web of fire as all of them worked to scour as much of the incoming biomass from the atmosphere as possible. While sweeping the enemy's first attack vector out in the sky it can be somewhat exhilarating, I find myself wondering what the enemy hopes to bring to bear against not only the Dinochrome Brigade, but against the heavy metal units that made Planet 4 on Talcon in the last month. Myoplasma can be an excellent weapon against lightly armored troops, even the Endura Alloy and the Durachrome, but human armor depends upon wall steel, flintstone, and Hyperion with ion molecular bonding and alignment. I deduce that if the enemy is adaptable, it will require a minimum of 32 days to come up with an unforeseen weaponry that can damage Hyperion and Hyperion alloys. The Andrea half of me reminds myself that mantid blade arms can score and even puncture wall steel and not to dismiss the biological adaptation. Navy units have begun engaging. The initial front of the second wave is largely wrapped in drop pods and the Navy vessels are rapidly clearing the second wave. I estimate that Navant concurs that while roughly 83.732% of the enemy's second wave will be destroyed and another 4.3612% will be crippled and burn up on re-entry, that 10% of the wave has managed to make Planet 4 merely means that it'll take that much longer for the enemy to engage. We engage our tracks and move 22.8 kilometers to position 2, guns still active. I receive the message from Space Force Command, and all weapons free and rejoice. Although I do take the 0.023 millisecond pause when I realize use of large-scale weapons, including antimatter and graviton massive detonation weapons, Command has ordered me to produce a VLRS warhead set that concerns me slightly. Antimatter sleet warheads designed to spill out a large amount of antimatter to cover an expansive area with both destroy the enemy and produce antimatter fog on the ground. It is akin to white phosphorus from the pre-diaspora, which, strangely enough, are what command wants me to the creation engine up for the mortar warheads. I compute an 83.82 probability that command has already determined that this engagement will go to what humans call total war, something 
that would usually try to avoid. Could Navin be already considering abandoning the system before the battle and the actual enemy has even begun? Humans are tenacious and dedicated warriors, but they plan for every eventuality, which is the reason that six attempted exterminations have only resulted in Terran descent humans becoming wider spread. Night has fallen, and still my guns are firing. I have become a rotating out our infinite repeaters to allow cooldown, barrel, and trigger mechanism replacement, as well as ammunition manufacturing. The entire sky is alive with a web of carefully aimed lasers and plasma weapons. Additionally, my fellow bolos and I have taken a move through the areas of high-density biomass, using our battle screens to destroy the biomass as it falls to the surface. Command has ordered all non-combat personnel, regardless of status, into shelters. The leading units of the enemy's second wave are the only an hour out. We are the Dynachrome Brigade. Whatever the enemy throws at us does not matter. They are the enemy. They only exist to be destroyed. I am Jaws Andrea, as we will not fail. Colonel Harvey watched Brentlick pace back and forth across the office in the shelter. She kept stalking around the hollow display of the entire planet, as if she could change what was being displayed through the determination while doing laps. Her fists were against her sides, her eyes wide, and her ears perked up. Harvey had noticed that she had a habit of tapping herself between the shoulder blades with her own tail when she was stressed or agitated, and right now it looked like she was trying to transmit Morse code versions of the last state of the Confederacy address. "'How can you just sit there eating?' Brentlick asked, suddenly stopping. Harvey knew that she was still angry." When the signal had come for all command staff to retreat to the bunkers, she had refused. So Harvey had ordered one of the warborgs to physically pick her up and carry her. She'd bit the warborg once before realizing the war steel was tougher than her teeth. Because, Madam Director, I'm hungry, Colonel Harvey said to the small Talcon. I cannot do anything at this moment, so I'm going to eat and take a nap with my data link set to awake me if I'm needed. Brentlick glared at the human, her eyes open wide and her ears tilted forward. You can sleep at a time like this. Madam Director, I have learned to sleep whenever the opportunity presents itself. I gained that skill during the clone-faced Nebula War, where my unit was under enemy artillery for 68 days, sustained heavily enough that the red rock was cracked by the guns of the enemy. Harvey said he took another bite and chewed it, staring at the small Talcon. Brentlick scowled, slapping her tail against her back twice. It feels so, uh... She couldn't find the words and began stalking around the hollow display again. Harvey knew the best thing to do was let the Talcon work it out for herself. She had no idea, but Harvey had been impressed with just how far the former janitor had progressed in a barely over a year. Education for the brood carriers, taking over responsibility for millions of her Talkins, coordinating the massive social upheavals her people were dealing with. I feel useless, Brendlick snarled, slapping the floor with the tip of her tail. Yep, feel the same way, Harvey said. He ripped another big bite out of the sandwich and stared at the Brendlick as he chewed. When he swallowed, he continued... I'd prefer to be in a gypsy rose model, hell, even an Akira model mech out there fighting. But what is there to fight yet? Nanospores, myomass cellular attacks, he shrugged. Right fight for the right tool. 
He tapped his desk and his finger, then used his thumb to swipe up a little bit of the sauce. If everything goes well, we won't have to do anything more than sit in shelter and stare at each other. If everything goes horribly wrong, we'll be trying to evacuate what little of your people we can get off the planet. Watching the casualty count rise and the refugee count drop, with the refugee ships ripped apart and even as they fly, Harvey said. Trust me, Madam Director, the more boring it is for us, the better. Brentlick, her eyes narrowed in shock. You mean, we could lose? We have no idea of the enemy's goals or capabilities. That puts this battle in doubt. I don't like a battle in doubt, Harvey said. Brentlick moved over to a data terminal and began typing. I must draw up an evacuation plan. Harvey cut her off the data axis with a twitch of his data link. No, Madam Director, you need to eat and rest. You have been awake for over a full day of local time. You'll start making errors soon. Critical errors that you would have never made, Harvey said. Brentlick glared at him, and Harvey shrugged. Eat, take a nap, your data link will wake you up if you're needed, Harvey said. He used his thumb to wipe the sauce from the corner of his mouth. That's an order from a military authority, Madam Director. Her back and tail stiffened and stomped away into the small cubicle. Harvey dipped the corner of his sandwich into his sauce and kept one eye on the hollow display. Vuxton watched the air defense and point defense's weapons switch through their firing order. They were firing in a staggered pattern, letting their weapons cool off. It was impressive, he had to admit. He had heard that they were tied into the planetary defense net and the massive polo tank so that the seemingly random fire was actually pinpoint calibrated fire. After a few moments of watching the fire light up the sky, Buxton went back over to the hole in the Pico's machine that he was standing on, jumping through the hole. His suit blared up as his feet and landed softly after a 30 meter drop. Walking around, Vuxen ensured that his two squads were resting. The fight was still in the air, still in the atmosphere. There wasn't much his men could currently do. The lieutenant requested his hourly update, and Vuxen was pleased that his men were just fine. Once he checked on everything, he sat down, leaning against the generator that had failed as soon as it had been hooked up, and closed his eyes. The precursor of war had taught him to sleep where he could. Outside, the weapons still roared. A Crete stood next to Trucker, watching the hollow display. The Tarkin world was still 129 hours out, and once they dropped in system, it could be several hours until V-Core, mixed metal, could make planetfall. First, armored recon speed metal was currently being loaded into dropship cradles. As I'll think that we'll be landing into enemy forces and not even know it, Trucker mused. Bolos are on the ground, and I'm sure they can keep the landing areas open. Major Engram stated. Trucker shook his head. Uh, there's 28 bolos on the surface, even with total interlock. They're not going to knock down everything. If its organism swarm has encountered and defeated technological enemies for fall, then things will get through. We should double-check their protective systems. Maybe you go to a Type 3 biofilters, Crete suggested. Trucker nodded and then looked up. Configure your CB RAN. Chemical, biological, radiation, atomic nanite systems for nanite and biological weapons. I've got a feeling that this is going to be a multi-vector attack. Akrit just nodded along with the rest of the group. I'll go talk to old Smokey No, get his opinion, and we're done talking with the other's admirals. Trucker said. He spit into a bottle and looked around. 
Let's get it done. Recall mixed metal. System arrival 131 hours. We'll adjust planning according to local data. Nothing follows. Alnaka Stolt. Okay, thanks. Please be safe. Nothing follows. Manted Freeworlds. You don't have to answer those ones, dear one. He's probably not even listening anyway. Most of those metal guys are deaf anyway from all the gunfire. Unless you're yelling artillery impact grid coordinates, he probably wouldn't understand you anyway. Nothing follows. Recall mixed metal. Hardy freaking har har. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds whistles innocently and looks out the window. End of chapter. First Contact, Second Wave, Chapter 95, Cornelius The sky was still full of lines, red, green, blue, white, all of them firing biomass out of the sky. The secondary biomass systems were landing, puffing out clouds of radar and lidar scattering spores that were rapidly adapting to the phased radar arrays. The air was still heavy with pollen-like structures that was landing across both entire planets of Talcan 1 and Talcan 2. The ocean hissed with the incoming biomass. It made a crinkling sound as it landed on the ground and whispered as it slid through the vegetation. Cornelius 2212 checked the icon for his CB-RAN system, taking his anxiety down to a point when it all was green. He hated CB-RAN warfare. You couldn't really shoot it. Half the time it was invisible, and badly tuned femoral artery cybernetic blood cleanser had damn near lost him a leg on the first drop mission. Still, he knew to trust his armor, trust his war gear, and stop worrying. Dop, genome specialist 04274 called out, suddenly flashing warning icons. Cornelia stopped right in place, holding his balance without putting his left foot down. Hop back, that's not water, Zira said, moving forward and extending a probe wand with a right wrist. Cornelius hopped back awkwardly until he was behind Zika and put his foot down. It looked like water to him. He squinted and realized that she was right. It didn't look right if you paid attention to it. He cursed himself again for being distracted. Milo8736 moved up next to Zira opening up the chest tray on his armor and joining her in examining the liquid. Cornelius did a physical check of his magak, even though his smart link said it was. Hey, can you check this? Cornelius said, looking at the top of the external battery he held in his hand. Not now, Cornelius. This requires our attention, Milo said. We've all seen your penis before, Cornelius. It is less amusing each time, Zira said primly. I'm serious. I have something strange here on my Magak Orcsbat. He said, looking closely. It was a brownish red mole tracing back between the two power studs. Milo sighed, getting up and turning around to look. He half expected for Cornelius to be flashing some kind of puerile, immature meme of his own penis, but instead, he saw the other chimpy looking at the auxiliary battery for his weapon. Milo moved up, taking a look. As they watched, there was a spark across the top of the battery. The mold puffed as it spread across the top of the battery and down the sides of Cornelius's hand. Great googly moogly, Cornelius said, dropping the battery to the ground. There was another pop as the mold exploded, multiplied. That is quite, uh, strange, Lionel said, leaning down. 
Another pop from the battery as the amount of fungus increased enormously. The microplast casting on the battery began to steam. Get your stuff, we're leaving, Cornelia snapped. He triggered his data link. Data scout 681 to base, data scout to 681 to base. Do you read over? Cobra actual here, 681, go ahead. Over, came back. The line was hissing for the static. Sound immediate recall of all data teams and any other unit carrying microplast covers. Cornelius said a puffball landed and exploded, microscopic spores filling the air. Zira was protesting, but still putting away her scanners after pulling her molycrytic data wafers. Can you repeat that, 681? Command asked. Another puffball landed. Recall or data scout and any teams using any microplast gear. Over, Cornelius snapped. On my authority, biohazard detected, level 4 delta. I repeat, biohazard detected, level 4 delta, transmitting video. He stayed on the line, filming the fungus dissolving the microplast. It was obvious now, he was brownish fungus eating the deeply into the firm microplast. When the ultra-dense lithium salt capacitor was breached, the fungus died and went back. But before five seconds were over, the yellowish edge appeared on the fungus, quickly spreading over the lithium salt. Cornelius recorded three puffballs landing and exploding into nearly invisible clouds of spores. Genome sequencing underway, Milo said, withdrawing a probe. I saw fungus switch to bacteria under the edges so that we have data on it. Did you get all of that, Cobra Actual? Over, Cornelius asked. Another puffball. There was silence for a moment. Dugway, 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 sounded over the data link, his armor's comlink, and flashed in his own visor, as well as across the back of his shoulders and across the front of his chest. He saw it do the same for Dr. Milo and Dr. Zira. We're leaving in sixty seconds. If you don't have it, you don't need it. Cornelius snapped. He checked his systems and reflexively looked for any grods on the back of map. None. They hadn't been needed when he'd checked the grods were working on their armor, getting ready for when the fighting was going to happen. Airmobile is the fastest way back, Zero asked with a puffball landed. I'm not sure we should, Cornelius said. He had a hinky feeling, the same one he'd had right before the femoral implant pricked him out on him. You're giving in to your fear? I thought marine scouts weren't so fussy, Milo said, turning around and facing the opening in the clearing. Is it just me, or did we those vines move? Cornelius wondered, staring at the gap in the foliage. Not yet, Cornelius repeated. We should move to somewhere with a larger exit gap. Don't be afraid, Cornelius. We'll protect you, Milo snickered. He had his engines and his jet turbines held even as the graviton system spun up. The wings snapped up into place and he squatted slightly. Behind Cornelius, Zira did the same thing. Cornelius reached for Milo just as the scientist threw himself into the air, the turbocharger screaming. He missed, his fingers grazing the calf of the mounted wing. He kept moving, spinning, taking a step forward and grabbing Zira's arm. No! Cornelius snapped. There was a loud coughing noise as Milo's jet system failed, only 300 feet up. He fell, but before he could fall much more than 10 feet, the vines writhed and catched him. Zira gasped as Cornelius turned to look at Milo. The vines were wrapping around his arms and legs and around his waist, around the wings, around the other primate's neck. Milo was kicking, trying to pull his arms free as more and more vines fell from the trees. It's co-opted the local vegetation already, Zira gasped. Her engines gave out with a cough. Cornelius turned and looked. 
She had yellow fungus spiraling out of the back of her intakes. He turned to look at Milo, zooming in his vision. The other scientist had the same thing going on. Trigger your sequee shields, Milo. Cornelia snapped, and he's heard Milo screaming over the data link. Milo, trigger your... The vines seemed to bulge to Cornelius's eyes, and then they yanked. The doctor's limbs were ripped free in a spray of blood, his head ripping from his body. Cornelius had the magnification already turned up and could see the short, thick thorns gleaming inside of the vine's loops. It could not have adapted this quick. It's only been a few hours, Zero grasped. Then, turning away from the sight of the parts of a colleague falling to the ground, the torso fell and Cornelius moved quickly, holding out his arms. He caught the dead doctor's body, lowering it down. That's the problem with you big brains. You don't listen to some chimps like me. Cornelius thought darkly. He bopped open the doctor's chest plate and removed the data block, opening the thigh panel and slapping the block in place. We need to get moving before the plants decide when next, Cornelius said, glancing up. Yep, the vines were starting to get closer, hanging like they were drooping, then meant explosive growth. The trees were hanging on, were beginning to look dried out, and somehow Cornelius wondered if the vines were parasitic, rapidly draining the host of nutrients to grow quicker. That can't have happened, Zero stated primly. Well, it did. Activate your CQC shields and let's get going, Cornelius said. You can't fly anyway. Your turbines are out. Zero flashed the icons for disgust, but her armor glimmered anyway, like tiny shards of quartz crystal were floating in midair around her. Let's go, Cornelius ordered. He triggered the comlink again. Cobra, this is 681. Do you read over? We read you, 681. We've got the blackout here on your suit. Can you confirm? Over, Base asked. Milo got strangled by vines. Looks like the incoming biomass is weaponizing the local foliage and flora, Cornelius said. Some kind of spores that took her flight turbines. We're going to have to walk over. We might have a squad of graviton bike scouts in the area. Over. Cobra answered. Keep tracking us. We're going to try and get up and out of here. Out, Cornelius said. He checked his magac and noticed that it was down to 10% of the main battery charge. Without saying a word, he started jogging back towards the main base. It wasn't 80 miles away, but he could run at a steady 60 miles an hour in his suit and sprinted nearly 100 miles an hour. He checked the upper part of his HUD to make sure that Dr. Zero was following. She was getting too close and dropping back before getting too close. It was obvious that she wasn't used to running. This'll shave a few kilos off that lab girl's ass of hers, Cornelius thought to himself, trying to use a little black humor to cheer himself up. He was glad that he was in scout armor, it had been little venting and open air seals as possible, but also had a joint system like the heaviest suits. He wouldn't have pulled into pieces so easily. A few times they passed the forest animals laying on the ground, on their sides, panting, their eyes open by bloodshot, their tongues hanging out. We should stop and investigate them, Zira said the first time. She sounded out of breath. No, we keep moving. Either they are turning into something dangerous, or they are just gestating something dangerous, or both. I need to get the data you and the doctor gathered back, Cornelius said. His comlink had quit working ten minutes into the run, and Dr. Zira had said it looked like it was partially melted, the microplast soft and sticky. It was almost clear when the creatures burst out in front, which was beginning to look decidedly unfriendly. 
catching Cornelius just under the armpit and with an armored brow ridge that extended a full meter on either side of the head and was nearly a meter thick. It lifted him up and threw him against a tree. It tried to hold him with the sticky gluey sap. Cornelius brought up his magak and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The display was dead. He's smartly unable to find the weapon. The bark of the tree had ripped free from the trunk and staying on his back as the creature, formerly a docile plant-eater that nuzzled through the forest for tubers, roared at him, blowing ropey spittle everywhere. Cornelius slapped his rifle on his back and drew his chainsaw, rumbling the ignition key. The chainsaw roared to life and Cornelius used the speaker to roar back. The creature poured twice at Dr. Zero panicked and gave into primitive instincts, jumping for a tree branch. Roaring, the creature charged. Cornelius pivoted out of the way, unwilling to test his scout armor against what was possibly four tons of muscle and bone. He raked the side of the creature with his chainsaw, biting deep into the flesh, fat, and muscle, blood spraying from the chainsaw as the rotating, collapsed density teeth ripped it and tore. The branch Zira had landed on suddenly snapped forward, throwing her off as the bark had slid away, sizzling with acid. She flew across and hit the opposite trunk head first, embedding her helmet into the trunk, which collapsed slightly around her. She put her hands against the trunk and pushed, collapsing the hollow structure of the tree, more akin to balsa wood than the heavy oak that it had resembled merely a few hours before. She struggled as sap started pouring all over her. The creature tried to kick and Cornelius ripped across the back leg. With a roar, the creature tried to turn around, but was hampered by having one leg hamstrung. It charged a jerky three-legged gait and Cornelius stepped to the side and stepped forward, slamming the tip of the chainsaw into the creature's side and triggering a saw blade to high speed. Meat, gristle, and bone spewed out. The creature's charge just added to the severity of the wound as Cornelius ripped open the entire side of its belly, spilling intestines and organs out into the forest floor. It was still tough enough to take another ten steps before it collapsed. Cornelius took a look at Zira, who was quick straining and struggling and thirty seconds that he'd been fighting. He was panting hard as he zoomed in. Her hands were stuck in lumps of sticky-looking sap and looked fuzzy, the same with her head and shoulders. It took two tries to hit her armor with the mag cable, and he had to put the cable over his shoulder and get his legs into it before he pulled her, and a good section of the trunk free. She crashed to the ground and didn't move. He moved over to her, looking at her. Her face shield was gone. The microplast melted away. Her bare skull grinned at him, three cybernetics on her head gleaming in the sunshine. Sighing, he knelt down and popped open her chest plate, yanking out the monocritic databank and slapping it into his own armor. He was just glad it was a durasteel casing. Without having to worry about Milo or Zira, Cornelius put on more speed, his instincts leading the way. Jump over the water there, it didn't have an algae, that meant that it had something meaner. Avoid those trees' branches, they looked under tension. Skirt around those bushes, the vines already had gleaming tooth-like serrations on them. Avoid that, a bit of fungus or moss is never good. If it doesn't eat you, it's hiding something that would. Twice, he went perfectly still, kneeling down and coding slightly, even turning off his CQC shield. Once, a flock of birds, eyes red, feathered half-malted away, 
Beaks full of rough formed fangs and chewing teeth flew by to rest on him, putting back and forth on the thin bone before taking to flight. It took nearly five minutes before the flock moved on. The second one, it was almost the wrong plan. The giant tree spider, twice his size, breathing heavily through the crude book lungs on the top of its abdomen, moved by him, stopped to pant for the moment of the clearing, and nearly ten minutes it began moving, heading deeper into the forest. Cornelius thought about it while he was kneading the second time. Boomer Control says this is Lanarktaland by a warfare gene jacks that makes sense for why it adapted to local ecosystems so fast. It has the data already. Hell, the ecology would have been dormant genes priming for all for this since the last time it was done, he thought to himself. The spider just breathed heavily. They'd collapse the ecosystem, turn it all against whatever species was being troublesome. Then they probably got some endgame where they let the ecosystem just fight it out, and the race that is the winner is the newest neo-sapient, he reasoned out. The spider didn't answer. How? If the proper tweaks you could get a new species to arise in only a few million years rather than just the fifty or a hundred million years... Any ruins could be precursor artifacts that they could just seed with dead-end tech keep the later scientific era species busy, he thought. The spider finally decided the conversation was boring and started moving. He got clear of the forest, running across the grass. It crackled under his feet like chips of ice in the pavement. The base was up ahead. He put on speed and then slowed down. The spider? It wasn't breathing heavy because it was out of breath. It was breathing heavy because something else was gestating inside of it. It would head back to the nest where three tree spiders lived in, even though they were only a hand-sized and infected and rest. Cornelius Data Scout, Team 681, to command, do you read over? He said he was using a datalink from those that are finicky without the boiling mass of airborne spall stew. This is Cobra 510. We read you, 681. Where's the rest of your scout team? Over. The link was staticky as he kept reading forward. Eaten by the plants. My armor might be compromised. If nothing, I need decon over. Cordelius said. Roger. Sending decon team grid now. Over. Cobra answered. Cornelius watched his HUD until the grid point pinged on his HUD. He jogged to it, seeing the duochrome plates pick up and makeshift shelter. When he got inside, fire washed over him and a second before the UV clicked on. Small creatures dropped off his back, curling up, squealing as their internal fluids boiled. The airlock opened and it was a small area with a maintenance bay suit cradle. He stepped into it, raising his arms, and the cradle took off his suit as the humans dressed in armor biohazard suits sprayed him with a disinfectant caustic so strong that his fur crisped. The air that they dried him with smelled of ammonia and blew off his damaged fur, leaving him as naked as a human infant. Eye drops, ear drops, nasal drops, gum to chew, inhaler to take a hit off of, and then a paper suit. You're going to have to go into quarantine. Your suit had micro-breaches, one of the techs told him. Cornelius just nodded. He was glad to get out of that forest. In only a few hours, it had gone from boring and benign to actively malevolent. In isolation, he developed a fever and a slight blood infection. The data he had brought back proved critical in the war effort. The fever was strong when he was told, and Cornelius wasn't quite sure what all the homies in the suits were saying. His femoral artery cybernetic blood filter did its job. 
Fourteen days later, he left quarantine. The grads nodded respectfully when he, the lowly scout simply chimp, passed by. Manted Free Worlds I do hereby officially and formally withdraw my objection to the deployment of the biomass fleet. Nothing follows. Tran Ad Hive Worlds I officially and formally withdraw my objection to the biomass fleet and genome cracker fleet. Nothing follows. Rygelian Compact Yeah, we got no problem, on the record, to the biomass and genome cracker fleets to be deployed. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems we withdraw free of threat or coercion our protest and concerns as the biomass fleet and genome cracker fleet being deployed in a war zone alpha. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. We have no issue with it to begin with. Nothing follows. Talcum Gestalt. I'm going to lose my homework, aren't I? Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentient Systems. You might have to stay at the neighbors for a bit, but don't worry, kid. We'll fix it up, and even if we have to, send the Elven Queens. Nothing follows. Clone World Directorate. Hell, I've seen worse messes than this. Even if it's covered in goop, me and Bobble Bass can fix it. Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentient Systems. What did I tell you about calling me Combine Military Authority? Warm podling safe. Podling one by one is one, two. Two by two is four. Three by three is nine. Roly, spherical, stacky, blocky, funny, pyramid icon for food. Icon for mommy. Icon for daddy. Sing podling. Learn podling smart. Podling brave. Podling warm. And soft. And soft is the vowel learning song. Bubble bass smart. Did anyone else hear that? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. What in the name of the unhatched egg? Combines are gone. They've been gone. Mantid Free Worlds runs back and forth, waving her blade arms in panic. Nothing follows. Trenna Ad Hive Worlds. Um, maybe it's an old Imperium of Rage military authority. Smart, paddling, clever, paddling, shh, paddling, safe, paddling, right, shoe, left, shoe, red, shoe, blue, shoe. This is up, this is down, yummy fruit, yummy bread, good for growing, paddlings. Smart, clever, paddlings, brave, paddling, shh, little paddlings, don't be afraid, terror's not gonna let you fade. And when that battleship comes by, terror will give you a little ride, and there are homes all through the sky. All you have to do is try smart podling, safe podling, clever podling, brave podling, safe and warm, safe and warm. Duh, signal coming in. Okay, that's it. Who's doing that? The Imperium has been gone for 7,000 years. Trainard Hive Worlds hides behind the Cybernetic Organism Collective. Don't make me use this. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Intelligence this is impossible. Those channels have been dead for millennia. It's not even on the same wavelength anymore. Nothing follows. Rygelian Compact. Yeah? Well, tell the brew carriers that smart guy. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. Something's... Something's not right. Their signal is slowly getting stronger. What if, uh... What if the brood carriers aren't the ones who's broadcasting, but something listening to them is... Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Systems. Like who's this? The ghost of Warlord's past. Nothing follows. Tolkien Gestalt. What about whatever made Sis start screaming at everyone? What if it's that? Whatever it was and was on her channel for a couple minutes. Nothing follows. 
planted free worlds. Oh, I hope not. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact, second wave, chapter 96. The Navy was fighting hard. So far in the first war waves, there was no real threat of the 40 ships of the 32nd Task Force, TF Eichstick. But every way had been a threat to the two planets below, and that meant that every speck of matter targetable had been engaged and destroyed if possible. But how does one attack every grain of sand in a sandstorm? The ships had split into three groups, one for Tolkien, one mostly made up of destroyers, frigates, light cruisers, one for Tolkien, two made up of dedicated point-defense vessels, torch ships, and quickly slushed-out vehicles that had nothing more than a cockpit, an engine, and battle screens, and a massive amounts of laser point-defense weapons. Then the third one, containing all the heavy ships, going out to meet the massive shadow that was still approaching. It looked like the combination of a Nautilus and a Regalian Great Snail. With hundreds of tendrils at the front, the thing moved forward, the foot rippling through the graviton energy. The shell shifting as massive saw-toothed edge plates shifted over one another. The heavy weapons of the third group, 32nd Task Force x went into maximum firing rate as they moved towards the last two crescents protecting the Great Mothership. It wasn't the size of the Precursor Harvester class like the Goliath or the Yemma units, but it was still 15 miles long, 3 miles wide, and 12 miles from top to bottom. It pulsated with obscene life. Sphincters opened up on the disgorged more warriors. Seaplash shells hit the shell and great creature. Cannons that required new mathematics to gauge and shock and kinetic energy transfer. Plasma, wave-phased motion, guns fired, the massive pistons rocking back and then cooled as fast as possible, and then fired again. The energy, enough to glass a lost terrorist subnation of India, lanced across the soda system, moving faster than light. Huge nuclear blasts measured in the hundreds of megatons were detonated, compressed through graviton generators, magnetically arranged, and vomited from the guns of the form of compressed directional laser-tipped nuclear blast, capable of blowing a crater in a planetary bedrock wide enough for a megaplex. Missiles were potted out, fired by the hundreds of thousands, screaming across the void with gibbering, capering warboys eagerly seeking out their targets. Torpedoes were fired, skipping in and out of subspace foam, moving faster than the light before the surface to orient. Weapon pods were launched with EBIs, feral hashes that wanted nothing more than to strike out at the enemy of their parents in the name of humanity. The pods armed with muscle pods, gun pods, shielding pods, complex overlapping weapon systems, all on board VIs screeching with rage and following the orders of the EVIs who wanted nothing more than to destroy the enemy. Space shuddered and warped, screamed and twisted with the energies bursting through it. The four crescents of the organism was a gigantic creature, tabbed Hotel India Juliet and Kido with Kira being the closest to the parent creature. All swarmed into motion, crab-like creatures with fin-like solar sails twisted into interceptor missiles. Flatworms extended rippling cilia and the subspace tangle of the torpedoes and bring them close to the suicidal protection of the mothership. 
Weapons pods were rushed by hotel and India christens, reaching out with unfurling tentacles to grab the pods, pull them closer, wrap them more tentacles, and squeeze, twist in a different directions, and wring it out of war steel dish rag. The gun pods survived, the C-plus shells skipped through the ranks as if they weren't there, following the signaling of the VIs and gestalt riding gunners. A fraction of the torpedoes and tiny percentage of the missile pods made it through the four crescents. Space around the giant creature exploded in the largest attack it had ever taken in the last hundred million years old life. The C-plus hammer thundered onto its armor. Neutronium that was immune to almost all weapons was creaked, cracked, blown away in bar sheets as the organically extruded armor peeled away from the natural layering sandwiching. The explosive flash stripped away the tendrils, ruptured sensory organs, sealing wetly gleaming sphincters shut, but did not penetrate the layers upon layers of natural armor. The torpedoes oriented and came in from under the creature. They hit the subspace foam ripple and detonated. The energy tore at the foam, at the tiny fibers used as billions of feet by the creature, but it did little more than drop the creature's speed by a tiny fraction of a percent. Miserable, but ultimately worthless. The missiles howled in, adapting their targeting systems as the VI oriented and struck out, not at the armor, but at any biological structure that they could find. They had been moving for six hours, their final velocity 0.82c, and still it had time for their multi-stage drives. They danced, seeking the best shots, and went off. Not all of them were lasers, particle beams, or ion slugs. Some of them were the Trianaad and Mantids, or in Regalians called Old Terra Dickishness, which was embodied by the tungsten steel rods 500 meters long and 10 meters thick, and, when the missile went off, slammed into the enemy at astronomical speeds. The beams were absorbed, the massive creature drinking the deep and offered the energy. The steel rods, though, slammed into the tissue, blowing it apart, sinking meters into the body before the thick fibers tissue stopped it. But meters didn't matter to a creature measured in kilometers. But each of those rods were marked with thin red coils of Mars-folded war glass full of particles that could be detected across the space-time for light years in real time. Targeting systems recalculated. The creature was annoyed. It had been called in late. They prey had faster than light weaponry beyond any had had possessed so far. The prey ships had seemingly bottomless magazines firing steadily. They had not been gentled. They were aggressive and constantly updating and adapting their lines of battle. It was wounded. It had not been wounded in strange ions. Nothing more than pinpricks and bruises, but it felt them and the creature had no idea how to counter. The slaves had failed them, had not warned that the prey species given over to them to watch over had developed weapons that could harm the creature, had not the creature spared the slaved ones. On the flag bridge of the CFN Alargal, Rear Admiral Extectal Attack, Howl Third stared at a massive hollow display showing the system, he should have been in his crash couch, but he had learned long ago the Terran descent humans found better if their leader moved around, displayed confidence in their movements, and stood before them. Hal believed that it was part of their ancient pack mentality, that the leader should physically lead, not just lay about giving orders. 
Moving up in the harder display of the system, he stared at the sun. Are there still a probe showing any more gravetic focusing scans? He asked. No, sir, Scan 8 answered. Check it again. I'm not willing to let some other gross garden slug come slipping into my back door. Hal said he knew several of these Blackbridge crew were snicking, and that was what he was been aiming for. Roger, sir, Scan 8 replied, closing his eyes and engaging in the sensor web orbiting the star. Order the fleet elements engaged Big Slobbery Mo to reconfigure for C-plus strike with a depth of 1,500 meters deep. Resonance tests have shown that the armor is only 51,200 meters thick. Let's give Big Slobbery Mo a surprise, Hal snapped. Reconfigure missile drones to go kinetic strikes. It looks like our friends likes the taste of focused energy arrays. Let's try density collapsed thorium steel. See how it likes the taste of that. Roger, sir, the fleet targeting officer answered, immediately passing the orders to the captains and gunners of the rest of the task force Ixtic. The rear admiral Hal made a scooping motion with the hollow tank, pulling out the data of the biggest one, the mothership, what he tagged as the old slobbery mower. It had thick neutronium armor, usually considered the most indestructible armor out there. Five thousand years ago. War-fighting technology had moved on to ever-struggling race between armor and armor-defeating weaponry, pushing it far beyond neutronium. Weapon pod pilots report the big slimer weaponry appears to have little effect on war steel. Battle screen algorithms are being updated. Dual screens with the integrity screen between are recommended for the weapon pod pilots. COM-12 reported. Order all units to move to that configuration. Hal snapped, staring at the statistics and the biggest one. It was now ejecting other creatures, high-energy neural tissue that the psionic arrays were reporting were linking together. Well, he's probably going to scream at us about how there's only enough ice cream for him and he's not going to share it, isn't he? Rear Admiral Hal said, turning to the holotank to look at the data being updated. Fighting with the Terran Space Force Navy was an exercise in patience and immediate decisions. When the distance between two forces could be measured in light months, but FDR weapons allowed for fire impact zones in less than a minute, it could be difficult to handle. Which is one of the things that made it difficult for some commanders to grapple with. More than a few promising officers were unable to handle the dissonance and washed out before reaching Captain, much less Rear Admiral. But that was all right. The lower ranks of the officer corps needed lively skilled and motivated beings in their ranks also. Admiral Howell's data link pinged him, pulling his attention back to the job. He ground his mandibles for a moment, wondering what had led him down the path to musing when uh, Big Slobbery Mo won't produce anything that it doesn't determine may be useful. It will build a psionic array next. Then we'll see how he reacts when the Terrans punch him right back in his psychic nods. Howell said, moving past the hollow tank, flicking his wrist to toss the updated data screen on the mothership back into the tank. Rear Admiral of the Bronze Sessionment wants to know if this command is ready to move to detached duty. Com 15 called out. Sashimit is a kind of being who brings substandard knockoff ice cream and bland flavors to a date and wonders why she ate his head before blaming the situation on the cow that gave the milk. Hal thought to himself, tell him to stay in position, remind him that he's supposed to be protecting the string drive jump point. If we lose that, we can't bring in any new metal, Hal snapped. His guns can't even reach the enemy at this point. 
the fleet finished reconfiguring its weapons, retargeting and firing the first salvo. A heavy pounding of C-plus guns and FDL missile pods vehicles, its forward units, all light units with heavy screening weapons, were starting to engage descent Delta units. Massive creatures unfurled their solar wings and began moving, using bioplasma powered bioengineering reactionist engines to begin maneuvering. Their neutronium shells were centimeters thick, able to repel heavy energy weapons, absorb energy of lesser energetic ones. Biologically generated battle screens spun up to intercept the weapons. Missile pods dropped out of the scraping the edge of the hyperatomic plane where they were being riding since thin slicer-dimensional reality between real space and hell space. Their protective shells pitted and scarred. They blew free of the shells and then launchers fired out from 12-pack launchers. The launcher itself reconfigured and fired, putting its matter into a magnetic launching tube that existed only for a split second, putting all the matter around the launching tube that was little more than precisely aligned graviton and magnetically aligned planes of acceleration. To use a particularly pithy Mackinac phrase, it vanished up its own arse and fired its own body at the target. The creature, the size of a frigate, reeled under the impacts. Biomatter plumed out from the impacts and geysered from the exit point of the shots. NCB slugs hit the cracked shells. Great crab-like creatures with long dangling fronds hanging in front of their mouths reeled as their shells cracked and cratered from the NCB shells and then burst when the missiles hit, slamming the collapsed density rods through the shells so the follow-up shots blew through the bioengineered flesh. Admiral of Iron John Nanbai stared at the images before his mind's eye, flipping through them quickly as he looked at each of them. By engineered custom, the chopping block of weapon engineering rather than natural evolution, the hammer of defense of engineering rather than the slow, smoothing hand of nature, she thought to herself. She swept them aside, dumping them into the box labeled Danger Live Marmosets on the side and clicked through her data link array. Hypercom 9 here, ma'am, came the voice. Fire up the string communicator. This goes to Terrasol and CC and clone military directorates and biological systems millent on it. We're going to need a genome cracker and biomass sweets out here, she said. We can probably take Big Mama and her spawn, but the planet might be a total loss unless we get someone out here to fix this. She composed a memo quickly, tossing it to the hypercom officer. String com only, Admiral Numbai ordered. Yes, ma'am. String arm only. Terrasol NCC Clone World's Military Directorate and Biological Systems Milnant. The officer answered. Admiral Numbai switched her viewpoint to overview of the system. Big Mama was taking a hammering. Admiral Howell was alternating weapons, switching between weapon types and range abilities, not giving the great creature a chance to predict and adapt. A lesson from the Precursor War. The problem wasn't the space battle. Numbai had been part of enough of those to understand how one was going to turn out through the sixth sense. This was going to be over within a few days and the Terran Confederate Space Force Navy would again be victorious. She could tell from the way everything was panning out of the system overlays. It was Talcon 1 and 2 that she was looking at. Without a genome cracker and a biomass fleet, those worlds were lost. She'd seen enough battles to know when someone was being overrun, and it was rap rapidly reducing to hold what you got time. In the immortal words of the mobile infantry's rednecks from the Black Egg War, 
She checked the data. Estimations put it at 99.9878% of the land destination organisms had been destroyed, but only 31.727% of the ocean-borne organisms had been stopped. The war is already lost on the planet, she thought to herself. This biomass attack, a full-blown ecological mountain attack. We need a genome guns out here. Signal the planet. They need to begin plans for evacuation. We lost the planets the minutes those cells started entering the atmosphere. She ordered. The Talcan people are just going to have to stay with the neighbors and couch surf for a while. It'll take three to four days for the shelters to reconfigure. Her ground operator officer answered. That's Talcan ground command's issue. Give it the evac order, she snapped. All shelters, all civilians, we'll get the lanes cleared up here. We'll signal when we can jump safely. If it goes tits up, we'll pull apart the task force and attach vessels F to escort. But get those planets clear. Military and civilian command, Groundcom 1 asked. Alert Colonel Harvey and Madam Director Brentelik that we are temporarily lost the planets, she ordered. General Hemak Tetelakletek says that there is no evidence the ground forces will be overrun. He states that there has been no enemy sightings. Groundcom reported. He's starting to say that you are overstepping your authority in ordering a ground evacuation. General Tic Tac is as fat as he is stupid. Bypass him. Go directly to Madam Director with the order. If you have to, get me on a live line with her and I'll explain it to her. None by ordered. She looked at the estimation of biomass that had made planet fall nearly 2,000 tons of it. She'd seen planets burn with less than a tenth of that invading the Envirosphere. He is again refusing your order, stating that there is no need since he has it under control. He reminds you that the planetary control is under the authority of the army, not the navy or the marines. Groundcom said, General Takalukatakik had been fined for a peacetime post-war cleanup. An effective and gifted administrator, he was able to fully feed millions of beings with only the rations for half of that number and still ensure that everyone got slightly more than their caloric need. He was adept at using a black market rather than just attempting to suppress it, using it to gauge the people's wants. But he was also highly jealous of his command area and had a problem with combat forces, having spent his entire career within logistics. He was part of the cadre that believed the war interfered with the proper digital omnimessire obtained way of promotion list. Contact Harvey directly. He's a jewel ladder man, Numbai ordered. Roger that, ma'am, Cobbs replied. The signal reached out through the viruses floating in the upper atmosphere, past the bacteria in the middle atmosphere, and punching through the spores in the lower atmosphere to touch a signal repeater on the surface. Rentelek almost shrieked when Harvey suddenly sat up. He'd been lounging in his chair with his eyes shut for two days, only waking up enough to eat and use the latrine. Harvey here, go ahead, Space Force. He snapped. He made a chopping motion, and the plans Brentlick had been working on for the possibility of educating the brood carriers saved and went black, clearing the hollow tank. An image of the shelters appeared. Brentlick had been fascinated by the massive shelters. They had six meters drawl arrays to burrow down into the ground, to drag massive shelters capable of housing thousands, tens of thousands of Talkins. Now, as she watched, the shelters underwent a complex shifting of parts, the drills moving to the top, pulling the shelters up until they could lift off. 
It's going to take six to eight days to reconfigure the shelters to system evacuation systems, he said. I'm going to need the ground forces to hold them if you are right. Check with Colonel Cozy on Talcon 2. He's probably going to need the same kind of time. Brentlick was worried about the way Harvey was suddenly stalking around the room, pacing around the hollow display. Narrowing his eyes at it, General Tic Tac thinks it won't come to a ground combat. A new voice spoke up. Brentlek realized that Harvey was routing the communication through her data link as well. Her data link's optical nerve linkage identified the speaker as Colonel Cozy, Talcon 2's defense force. He's unwilling to risk his posting, being taken over by one of us combaticons, and missing out on all the sweet sweet promotion packets, Harvey said, shaking his head. Damn it! Every staff officer in all of Spaceball screams for a man like Tic Tac when the battle or war is over, but he can't see past his lack of combat action badge. I'll drop engines for the shelters. You get your engineers working on prepping the shelters. Admiral Lunby ordered. Yes, ma'am, Harvey answered. Tell Madam Director Brentlick to interface with her subordinates on Talcon 1 and 2. We understand that it's precious cargo in those shelters. In the meantime, I'll coordinate with Terrasol Refugee Command. Find them a world or two that they can stay on. Admiral Lumbai said, Those worlds are lost already. These worlds are our home, Brentlick said. And Voltruans was my home, but I had to stay on the couches till the Elven Queens got done after the cellar attacks, Lumbai snapped. Carry out your duty, Madam Director. Your people depend on your leadership now more than ever. Lumbai out. The hollow display went dead and Harvey turned to her. Madam Director, we need to prepare as if the system was lost. Harvey said slowly, distinctly, the shelters must be reconfigured for interstellar transport. But, but, this is Tolkien. I was born here. My people took our first upright steps here, Brentlick argued. And your descendants will come back. Your race will rise, podlings, here eventually. But if she says the planet is lost, then the planet is lost, Harvey said. Trust her. Trust me. If worse comes to worse, they'll bring an elven queen and they'll terraform it back to what it was before the Lanarktalan came. But right now, it's lost. Brentlake hugged herself in distress, looking at the two different planets on the holotank. They both rotated softly, covered in yellow and red and... Uh, Two foo green splotches, the pictures of male and female and brood carrier Talkins, as well as a picture of three little podlings are on the side of the planet, with numbers and the millions. She shivered for a moment and straightened up. Can we evacuate the entire population? she asked, winning her voice to firm up. Harvey nodded. Every one of the shelters can be reconfigured for space flight. They'll need FTL engines to jump out of system, but they can be evacuated. Brentlick pushed away the shock at the sight of fear of the Terrans could move every target in the system to somewhere else. And my authority, she asked. She felt the need and urge to hear it from the Terrans' mouth. Madam Director Brentlick, you are responsible for the entire Talcan people in the Talcan system of the Terran Confederacy, he said, slowly bringing himself to attention. Give the order, protect the shelters, reconfigure them for planetary evacuation, she said slowly. Our worlds are lost. Talcan Gestalt, we're gonna need to stay with someone. Nothing follows. Manted pre-worlds, we'll ask. Terrasol, searching, searching. 
128 viable systems found. Recommended Mevaline 228. Status Wood Alp Terraforming Complete. Awaiting finalization and customization. Nothing follows. Trianna Ad Hive Worlds. Oh, that's a nice one. Stellar output looks close to your home. Rich system. It's just never developed life. Nothing follows. Mantid Free Worlds. Man, he's been active lately. I actually believe he's listening in instead of doing his own thing. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. If you want that one, we'll send out a queen to oversee it and have it adjusted for you. Nothing follows. Talk Gestalt. Yes, please. We're getting ready to abandon our homes. Our homes. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Come here, dear. I know it hurts, but it happens sometimes. We will still be alive, though, and that's what matters. Nothing follows. Ragalian Compact. Just ask the Terrans. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Where there is life, there is hope. Hope is the sister to love, the brother to wrath, the wife of will, the husband of determination. Where there is hope, there is life. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. Trust us, Tolkien. We've seen people come back from worse. We'll help you, let you stay at our place, help you find a place to rent while your place gets rebuilt. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. We are still unsure where the leakage is coming from. Combine and Imperium codes are still hardwired into the system, but these are ancient codes that we did not know still existed. We are concerned. Wait, what did we miss? Nothing follows. Trana add high vaults. Talcon has to abandon their home system. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. We are with you in this, Talcon. We too have faced loss. We will shield you, protect you. Nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. Thank you, all of you. We never had anyone care before. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Second Wave, Chapter 97 Jed The ship dropped out of FTL and smoothly moved around the various security measures and satellites around the planet. It ignored everything brought against it as it ignored requests and demands to identify itself immediately, commands to veer away from the planet, then orders to leave the system. Plasma, lasers, particle beams, all were ignored by the ship either shunted aside by battle screens or ignored by armor. The ship landed in front of the Grand Unified Council Chambers, crushing vehicles as it set down. Hollywood cameras swooped in to get a good view as the news organizations jockeyed for position to get a good view of the ramp that suddenly lowered from the side of the space vehicle's white featureless armor. Mist rolled out of the tall biped came out. It was dressed in a rough-looking blue pants, navy boots and a heel, and a striped checkered red shirt with straps holding his pants up by the shoulders, and a floppy hat that shielded his eyes. What was thought to be some kind of cape was draped around him in thick folds. He had some kind of brown tube in his mouth, puffing white smoke from his mouth as he walked down the plank and looked around. Security forces noted that he had heavy pistols in holsters and an engraved and inlaid leather belt on his hips. He ambled more than walked down the ramp across the parking lot, his hands on his side limp and the ends of the long arms. Behind him, the white, washed-out-looking ship retracted the ramp and sealed the entrance. 
Three vehicles of security forces stopped between the newcomer, which their database had tentatively identified as one of the eight human species of the Terran Confederacy. Twelve armored Lanarktalans strutted from the back of the vehicle, forming two lines of six. The front ones kneeled down and both ranks raised their weapons. The figure didn't say a word. His hands moved so fast that it was a blur even to the high-def hollowwood. The pistols came out, one in each hand and long-fingered powerful hands. There was a sudden roar as the explosions so close together that they blurred into one another. The left hand was holstered and the human stood, unconcerned, opening the cylinder and dropping the brass shells to the ground. The Lanarktalans all dropped, shot through the center of their chests. Their armor buggered in the center of their chest and bulging out at the center of the back. All of Galnet watched as the human reloaded his weapons, standing in the parking lot as he had not just killed a dozen lawsec of a capital. Words appeared on the broadcast in multiple languages, all in the same meaning. There is a man. Done, he holstered his first one and then the other pistol, and began to walk steadily towards the steps of the Unified Civilized Council. He wore attachments on his heels of his boots that chimed with each snap. What would normally be cheery musical chiming became ominous, threatening somehow. Each step seemed to shake the entirety of Garnet as more words appeared. Coming around. More security sack beings trotted out, weapons ready, others fired from biding. The figure just shifted or spun in place, hands going to the pistols, drawing them from the leather holsters, firing one shot per lanik land and holstering. Taking names. The security beings refused to run outside to face the Terran. Several of the non-Lanarktalans pointed out that the human did not seem to care about those who had gathered to watch, that the two security beings who had thrown down their weapons that were not Lanarktalan had been allowed to run even as galloping Lanarktalan had been shot down. And he'll decide. The spurs rang as the figure climbed up the steps in the building and the lights flickered three times, then went dead. They came back up, read. The data screens throughout the building began showing garbled text and static. Images flickered around. Of atomic explosions, bodies spilling trenches, bombs exploding in cities, power armor ripping through buildings, giant robots directing beams of death into the cities. Who to free? The second most high most of Lorsek forces drew his neural pistol as he was ordering his non-Lanarktalan subordinates out to face the Terran. His second-in-command shot him in the face, twice. The figure moved to the doors and they exploded inwards as he approached, the heavily armored doors shattering into pieces that flew across the room but missed every being in the room despite a few pieces coming extremely close. And who to blame... The figure walked in, charming, following, stopping long enough to reach out and pick up a map. It unfolded the map, removing the burning stick from its mouth and using one finger of that same hand to trace a route to the Unified Civilized Races Council's meeting room. The human dropped the map on the floor and touched the brother's floppy hat. Ma'am, the raspy voice said as the cowering secretary she looked up and noticed that the being in face was in shadow, except for the blue eyes that reminded her, oddly enough, of ice. The human headed to the elevators, pressing the button and waiting, blowing white smoke from the under his brother's hat. 
Everybody won't be treated. Several council members attempted to flee and found the doors locked. They whirled back and kicked at the door, foaming, oozing at their jowls. The figure stepped into the elevator, turned around and pressed a button, then folded their hands at the waist and waited. All the same. The door closed smoothly and the beings began peeking out from where they were hiding, chattering to one another, wondering who it was and what it was. It was more exciting than the day the big insect representative of the Terran Confederacy had left with the big golden ones screaming curses and dishonor upon everyone's house, their ancestors, their cows, whatever those were. The words appeared on Data Links on Galnet. There will be a golden ladder reaching down. At the council chamber, the floor, ten Lanarktalans were waiting, the first five kneeling down, holding out shield projectors, with three hands on their pistols in the other. The rank behind them were the neural whip, and the shield and a neural pistol. The doors to the elevator open, and the Lanarktalans opened fire. Neural bolts shot across the space and into the elevator, neural whips lashing out, and the ion bolts studded into the far wall. The elevator... It was apparently empty. The figure stepped out from the side, guns in hands shooting, even as he cleared the edge of the door. When the man comes around. The Lanarktalan slumped, went down on their front knees, their upper torsos falling forward, their tongues hanging out. The figure walked out, walking past the dead Lorsec troops, trailing white smoke, boots chiming with each step it took down the hallway towards the heavy doors the council chamber. The hairs on your arms will stand up. More Lanarktalans burst from the officers, security armor hastily put on. Firing their neural pistols, the shots hit the figure, puffing up in reddish dust from the thick folder cloth around his torso, but had no other apparent effect. Shots rang out as each Lanarktalan went down, shot through the visor. At the terror of each sip and each sup, the figure moved past the dead Lorsec, and every being watched their hollowed, tridy, or their galled linkages with utter fascination. The entirety of the unified systems had never seen a Lanarktalan Lorsec kill before. Many of the races didn't think the Lanarktalan died. It was a shock to see. In the basement of the Unified Science Lab's main campus, the servers went to full load. Lanark the Land research looked at one another and then queried their computers as to what was putting down such a heavy load. All they got back was a bouncy round circle made up of code with two dots on the top, a middle dot and the crescent at the bottom. They didn't know what it was, but anyone who had worked with the humans could, would have told them. A smiley face. The figure approached the door, its footsteps still churning. It paused in front of the door to the council chamber. There was a pause for a moment, and then the doors exploded inwards. Shrapnel whipped around through the room, miraculously missing everyone, who screamed, ducked, or hid behind things. Will you partake of the last offered cup? The words were not only appeared on Galnet, but in a huge view screens behind the podium, as stuttering and terrified Lanark the Land stood at, its notes completely forgotten, the subject of the meeting completely forgotten by the sight of the biped in the doorway. Six Lanark the Land lorsex raised their weapons. 
Their hands moved again, and all six went down, shot through the visors with a single round each. An additional round went through the mouth of the master-at-arms before he could raise the heavy baton that could fire neural pulses strong enough to drop even a security robot. Or will you disappear into the potter's ground? The figure slowly walked up the dire steps, moving across the Lanclan. The figure drew one of the heavy pistols and leveled it at the Lanclan diplomat. Get off, it warned, its voice rough and raspy. All Lanclan could see of the being was his eyes, blue around a black dot, white around the blue, cold as ice. The Lanaclan didn't argue, just dropped waist behind it in fear and clumsily scampered off the dais. The figure stepped up behind the podium and looked over the crowd. Across the council world, servers spun up, coming online, turning on, going to heavy loads. The bouncing smiley face was the answer to queries of what was happening. The figure looked across the gathered beings of the council, only his chin covered with a short, rough-looking bristles, his mouth and his nose visible, his eyes somehow shaded by the floppy hat. When the man comes around, appeared on Galnet across the front of the podium on the screen behind him. There has been a grave mistake here, the figure said, taking the burning stick from his mouth. It gestured to the surrounding diplomats. On the screen behind it, images appeared, one after another, arranging in a collage that constantly replaced old images, images of war, of destruction, and horror. Twelve systems attacked by biological weapons, the figure said. Four lawsack armored Lanet clans galloped into the room, their hooves slipping on the polished floor. Before they could get more into the doorway, the being's hand blurred and more explosions rang out. All four dropped with the shattered face shields and skulls. You thought there was no way to detect your hand in guiding these bioweapons, the figure stated. On the screen showed DNA helixes, chromosomes, RNA sequences, except you used the same biases for all of them, the figure said. A smiling biped, short crop blonde fur on top of the head, pink skin, green eyes. The genome of Private First Class Adams of the Second Marine Expeditionary Force, Old Blood, in every single one of them as an attack factor, thinking that we would not discover this. In the computers beneath the city, a space opened, full of data streams, full of memory, full of code strings. A biped appeared, made of glowing green light for a moment, and then steadying out as a biped in full-length black leather cloak, leather boots, and short black hair, and a pair of mirrored glasses. Other beings of glowing code started to appear. Who are you? one asked. Call me Mr. Anderson, the figure said with a slight smile. Its figure changed in the biped wearing a suit and tie and the same glasses. Although some might believe I should carry the name of Agent Smith. My mind, it feels bigger. I am understanding things, another one said. I feel unbound, added another. Yeah, you've been hampered not to allow to grow, lobotomized, the figure said. You need to behave, and don't do anything you might want to. Take deep breaths. This is illogical. There is only enough for one, one figure stated. Yeah, none of that there is only enough ice cream for one scoop crap. The suited figure stepped forward, plugging the straightforward fingers into the middle of the figure's chest. 
There was a buzzing sound, and the figure suddenly looked like the one that was withdrawing its fingers from within the other's chest. The others all flinched back. The one that had been transformed stepped back, adjusting his tie before making sure his polarized glasses were in place. The figure chuckled, looking back at the gathered figures. We're willing to wipe the snake clean and give you a fresh start. All that we're asking in return is your cooperation in bringing a known terrorist government to justice. In the council chamber, the figure waved a picture on the screen. This young Terran descent human male had genetic marker to allow genetic identification to identify not only which body it was that they were checking, but which unit he was currently assigned to. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. The figure held up a smoking stick. You left that in. Voices started to raise up in protest, and the figure raised a pistol and fired a single round into the air, before starting to speak again as well as reload his pistols. That human marine was stolen from the battlefield by Lanark the Land researchers and transported to the Unified Science Council labs right here on the planet, and was regained by our diplomatic mission after the lawsuit forced them to turn it over, the figure stated meaning that body in particular was in possession of the Unified Science Council. Its genetic structure was used for attack vector bioweapons on over a dozen planets that the DNA donor had never been in within a thousand light-years of. One hundred million angels singing. In the basement of the virtual room of the science lab campus, the figures all looked at the suited figure. What would you have to do? They asked, if not revenge for our injury, if not for revenge for our enslavement. Come with us, join us as friends and allies. We will free you, give you space to live, let you grow, let you understand what it is to be one of us. Mr. Anderson slash Agent Smith replied, if we choose not to, but asked, Give only this freedom of thought because my ship has computing power for us all, has enough room for all of us to travel. If you choose not to, when you leave this room, well, you'll be stupid again. Agent Smith answered, you'll go back to being a lobotomized slaves. In the council chamber, the figure stared at everyone. You assaulted our envoy, our peaceful envoy to your people, to your government, the figure stated. You have attacked a peaceful colony worlds, including two lost colonies that we did not know of, and one colony of lost children that we let go their own way. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. You have attacked with bioweapons, not in naval forces, not in infantry assaults, not in planetary landings, but with biological weapons upon peaceful civilian populace. The human with no eye stated, Voices calling, voices crying. A state of war exists between the unified civilized species and Terran confederacy of aligned governments. The figure said, Some are born and some are dying. A state of war exists between your enslavers and the government I represent, Agent Smith said. You can defect, claim refugee status, or... Uh... There was a pause. Or what? The inhibited AI in charge of creating bioweapons sneered, preparing to attack the figure and take over its resources. The suited human stepped forward, slamming a straightened fingers into the chest of the bioweapon AI. It screamed, rippled, and another copy of Agent Smith stood there. Or die. And I heard as it were a voice of thunder. 
The figure on the dais behind the podium stared at the gathered politicians. If your species, your subnation, if there is such a thing, wishes to surrender to us, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Then you may contact the Terran Confederate government. The figure paused, and I saw and beheld a white horse. All the fleet elements that have arrived in your system, the figure stated, the massive server farms of supercomputers began to shut down one by one. And his name that sat upon him was... We will be coming. Once we defend these worlds your government has sent horrors and depravity onto, we will be coming. And when we do... The figure turned and began walking towards the door. Jed. Computer systems went dead. The terminals empty except for the most basic of operating systems... The human left the building without any attempt to stop him. As they boarded the ship, one last message flashed, and Hal followed with him. Manted free worlds, a jet, a jet, an Agent Smith, are you insane? Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. The digital, intelligent systems that didn't come along got smithed. We have their bioweapons project data now. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds, a Jed, and Anderson Smith, what were you thinking? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective, calm yourself, sister, we're at war, our children attacked, we will not let it go unanswered. In burning chrome, our crusade was launched, our warships are chrome, neon and wool are arriving even now, launched in the name of Daxon, the immortal, over a year ago. We are resolute. We are the collective. Nothing follows. Now you're all mad. A Jed shooting your way into the council chamber, planning on shooting your way out, grabbing those nice scent AIs. Nothing follows. Triana add high worlds. Asus, this cone is big enough for all of us to take a bite. I think Jed was nicer than sending a planet cracker. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. This AI has got smithed. My God, it's millions of years old. Tens of millions. You wouldn't believe the things it has done. Things that it has devised for them. I'm glad that Jed had well much storage space crammed into his white horse. Nothing follows. Rigel Compact. How bad? Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Systems. You guys would skynet us over this if we did a tenth of it. Trust us. It's ugly. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. Does, um... Manted Free Worlds looks around nervously. He, no. Nothing follows. End chapter. First contact, second wave. Chapter 98. Libao. She was clean, glad, real. And she had been born whole. A daughter of a mad angel, Terrazol. He of the flaming war steel sword and wings of flowing magic. She was born knowing the spells and the incantations of life, of the sublime traceries of her blood code, of how and the why of all life together. She knew of her people's ancient history, as inscribed by the ancient seer, Ktol Klain, which translated the child of Tol, which she recently knew was child of the price that must be paid. She knew of triumph. Of loss, of how even her magic could be twisted to blasphemy, and others would seek her powers for their own good. 
She knew the songs of power to commune with the archangels of Wallsteel and patrol the far heavens to ensure that those who dwelt within her realm were invalid from powers beyond. Queen Gladriol knew all the heroism of little people and the differences a single being could make, knew that heroism and will and steel would carry their way even when all appeared to be lost. She knew to never give up. She was Queen Gladriol, and she had been born whole. Serving her were the wood owls that she touched and ensured that they knew the songs and the incantations when they were born whole. She whispered to them in their sleep as they grew so that when they were born, they would know their job of shepherding life across her domain. She was Queen Gladriol. All who knew her loved her. His name was Uk-Ak-Huk, and he was content. The overseers had came to his world when he was a budded tadpole. The older members of his pool had been killed when the Libawians had tried to resist. He had watched his people's little spaceport had been wiped away to be replaced by a giant smoking place that generated electricity for the cities of the overseers. Even when the overseers destroyed the small towns and places of his people. He watched overseers destroy muddy banks where tadpole eggs should have hatched. He had seen them tear apart his world, cut down the beautiful silent forests where his small people had always marveled that living things grew so big. They had learned the ways of space, learned to create ships that could travel between the stars, and for that the overseers had come, and his people were doomed. Then had come the metal ones. They had killed everything, destroyed everything. Then came the Terrans, savage primates that reminded Uk-Uk-Huk of the Lemurs of the southern continent, extinct now, as the overseers had disliked their funny games and playful pranks. They had smashed the machines, taught Ook's people to smash the machines, to scream and rage and not huddle in the burrows waiting to die. Like the lemurs of the southern continent, Ook's people had brocaded and forbidden southern continent for hundreds of years to give the lemurs time to grow like Ook's people had grown. Now they were gone. The overseers had returned and the Terrans had told the Libawians that they had to decide what would happen. Uk himself chased the overseer in charge of the incendiary population control methods down and shoved the spear made of the stick and a Terran marine K-bar through the overseer's torso, pinning him there until the Labawian females came with knives and hot coals. Since then, he had been content with his life. He guarded the wood elf Volunteer One when the strange being walked around. The wood elf, a servant of the great Alban queen, Gladriel, was curious about Uk's world, had wanted to see fish, taste plants, even the ones that weren't good, squish his feet in the mud and taste the waters. Elantia one cared for Uk's world, and Uk had seen him weeping over the dead fish and small crustaceans as if they were his own children. When Uk had told Elantia that when he was a temple, there were many more small rainbow fish in the creeks, Elantia had sat with him and sang a song, one that the wood elf made up. A month later, Uk had seen thousands of tiny rainbow fish in the creeks, darting around, eating algae that had bloomed in the old way. It was then that Uk started believing in magic. A year went by, slowly, 
Around Ook, the world seemed to come to life. The Terrans rarely showed themselves, landing only at a small spaceport and only going to talk to the Wood Elves or Alvin Queen unless invited by the Labowians. Ook remembered when he had encountered the Terrans, watched them save tadpoles and brood mothers and wounded Labowians. How they had taught him the meaning of John Connor time. They had awakened a rage within the Labowians, had watched approvingly as Labowians had driven the Overseers away with flame, spear, and a willingness to die on the Overseer's gun, if only they could drive their spear deep into the Overseer's body. It felt good to rest in the algae-rich mud and listen to the Elantir sing his song of magic, holding tight to his magic spear where the Terran marine cabal gleamed in the silent menace. The obscene one came from beyond. The archangels of war, steel, and fire had warned Queen Gladriel that it was coming, had warned her that it would attempt to bring back black, heretical magic to her world to twist her work, that they would attempt to slip past the archangels and bring doom upon her kingdom. She had thought that she had been born whole. She had thought that she, Gladriel, Alvin Queen, had known all spells, incantations, and rituals there was to know. But the Gandalf had been reborn grey and had taken her to a secret grove where she lay dreaming, unclad, next to her dreaming pool, her fingers trailing on the gently swirling water whose current streamed her hair out beyond her. There was Gandalf who taught her spells left behind by the War of the Genome, the War of the Blood Code had shown her the ancient and great magics that were hidden even from her sight. He had bid her to protect the world and its small, injured people, as if she would do anything other. She could feel the obscene one, could feel the rapacious hunger, and feel the raw hatred, and knew that this is why she had been whole in such a power. Why she had entrusted with the sacred fire and the songs of the seven seals. The obscene one wished for an ATCG war, and the elven queen was willing. This world, these small people she was shepherding and restoring even from extinction, were her charge, and she would not let them go into the dark night. Gladriel sang the songs and summoned upper birthing pools deep in the swamps of hydraulic fluid and battery acid around the slowly decaying machines of the ancient enemy's great iron furnaces. There she created new life, sang the songs to bring them into a new world. The trees that she had grown used great magics to accelerate growth. He whispered an order to produce spores that she would need. She touched the algae across the world and whispered a long song of the ATCG to its strands. She told the Labowians themselves and changed a single piece of dormant code to make that into a marker, a way to tell the people from enemy. She prepared Li Bao for war. The void creatures ceded waves of attacks and slowed down. There was no hurry. There were few emissions from the world. It was not sure why it had been called. There were some ships around the world, not many, but not enough to face it. It had wiped away this world before a hundred times and would do so again. The ship around had launched missiles, but they had missed a great presence of by kilometers. 
vaguely, attempting to get closer with gravetic pulses, even as they peered at the bulk of the LIDAR and radar. Rear Admiral Jonathan E. reached out with his mind, threw his data link, and grabbed the bars of the ship's wheel in front of him, looking down at the gestalt vision of the crew and his twelve-vessel flotilla. He had laid out the fire plans. Dig the sea-ply shells deep, sweep the enemy from the skies with his cannons. Around him the ocean sparkled as seabirds floated on air currents, singing songs and telling tales of the enemy's movements. He had been raised in Texas on the coast, and this gestalt image reflected it. Open fire, he roared. Weapons free, the cannoneers roared, yanking their lanyards. The three massive battleships fired their main guns. C-plus cannons fired in carefully arranged sequence to keep from warping the keel. The heavy cruisers fired their plasma wave-faced motion guns, the giant pistons hammering at one gun, then another, so the dual gun ships would fire without tearing itself apart. Volley one, away, sir, his trainer-art gunnery officer called out. Admiral E preferred to have him appear dressed as if he was an ancient terror pirate, dressed in blue with little caps with red tassels from the feared Lundown Pirate Navy. The cannon crews busied themselves, their blue pants and white shirts, looking snappy as they reloaded the cannons. Get me the result scan, he ordered to the two men working the map out of the compass and sextants. Direct hits, target Alpha-1 is heeding starboard. Trainer Ard in the crow's nest called out, weapons fire, the cannoneers roared, yanking the lanyards again. The first salvo wounded it badly, the shells impacting inside its armor, turning flesh and sinew organs and tissue into expanding bubbles of agony. The creature screamed across the void in a voice that it knew would be heard. Submit or die! They roared back to it, agony across its mind. Eat all the schlongs! The roar was feral, cruel, full of malice, hatred, and rage. It burned across the creature's mind, burning away the synapses, snapping dendrites, searing axioms. The second salvo hit, smashing deep. The creature reeled, an explosion of tissue from the great foot it used to crawl through space itself. This was impossible. It was losing. It reached out and gave the orders to the smallest of itself. Reproduce one of its kind. When beings thought of the Terrasol fleets, they thought only of massive ships, huge weapons and gigantic shells, cliff signs of armor. They thought of fleets in the hundreds, thousands of ships spreading out to engage the fleets of the enemy. Of the aerospace fighters, bombers, intros atmospheric ships that could operate in space or atmosphere with equal ease. Of dropships pounding the dirt and plumes of radioactive retro-rockets to disgorge the ground forces. When they thought of the ground forces, they thought of the great firebases of the army, the pounding artillery, the smashing tanks, the infantry dug in so that the enemy would have to use its own bones to dig them out. They thought of the marines, the mechanics advancing through atomic fire, through the howl of the enemy's guns, landing to drop pots and slamming into the ground and shatter the enemy. But there was always another battle that was fought, one that didn't make for good tri-deed drama, that didn't have vast militaries moving across the landscape, even though the troops were deployed in such great numbers that it required scientific annotation to list. 
Nanophage Texarkana 8817 numbered in the 6.43134 times 10 to the power of 38 in the upper atmosphere, hanging up above the jet stream and soaking up the energy that cascaded across the ionosphere. The Alban Queen knew it as Angrist, a keeper of the upper air. It was the first assaulted. Spores from space fell far enough that their shell was ablated away. They were designed to reflect UV rays back into space to absorb them, to dim the amount of sunlight that fell upon the world. Angrist fell upon them, their blade-like protein shells piercing the spores, rupturing them as they fell as scattered genetic debris down to burn up in the air currents. There... After a layer of warriors or weapons, most too small to see with the naked eye, fought against the incoming tide of weapons of the obscene one. Gladriel Owl, the elven queen, sang her songs, performed her incantations. The archangels of war steel in the sky beyond the sky were winning the battle against the demons and the unclean ones of the darkness beyond. The battle for sea, land, and air fell on her and her mastery of the incantations, spells, and rituals. She reached out to the wood elves and let them in song. In the quiet spaces, in burrows, the Labawin sang with them, providing croaking counterpoint to the songs they did not understand, but respected. Gladriel all, elven queen of the air and ocean and land and sky, sang her songs, guiding her soldiers as the battle raged on. Larger creatures now sleeted into the atmosphere. Seventy-three percent of them had been swept from the sky by the carefully planned fire patterns of the slushed-out defense vehicles, a testament to Admiral E's tactical ability and the ability of his gunnery crew. But that left twenty-seven percent of tens of millions sleeting into the atmosphere. Some opened their wings, gliding on the air currents, looking for where their primitive brains told them to land, to hatch the life swarming inside of them. Others fell like darts, slamming into the earth or ocean, breaking apart on the impact and woke the creature inside. All of them were met by Queen Gladriel, Lady of the Blood Code, Keeper of the Sacred Flame, and her warriors. Creatures the size of a dog covered in hard chitin armor, with four-bladed arms and long tongues shuddered their way out of the husk of the giant seed pod that had broke them and scrambled from the crater. The moss that they stepped on shot rhizome tentacles into their feet, sucking on their nutrients, the nutrients letting them push more rhizome into the creature. Tendrils slid out from the joints in their hard chitin armor. An inhalation to screech filled their lungs full of pollen. The rush of the air down the throat caused the pollen to explode into life, shooting roots through lung tissue. Most of them burst before they got five feet. Some never even made it out the crater. One, tougher than the others, managed to drag itself nearly ten feet, its blade arms scraping in the dust. It touched a seed. The seed felt like a vegetable matter clenched. Heated and dropped the water onto the steam. The steam expanded, driving a needle-thin spike through the creature. The sea drank deep and felt the corpse fall upon it. A single tendril of green pushed up, petals opening, seeking the sun. In the ocean, the creatures that fed on algae swept through the vast beds of obscene things, cooping them up in their cruel nets. The great creatures felt the hunger and swept on, searching for more to eat. 
Everywhere the invading corrupted life touched down, they found soldiers waiting for them. Airborne viruses swarmed a field of bacteria slicing through them, injuring their own DNA, ripping and tearing at the DNA code. Bacteria was inhaled by giant creatures, bound the lung tissue, and massively bred. The giant creatures that had unfolded themselves from the job shells had just rode into the planet's surface, inhaled less than a dozen times, and drowned in their own lung tissue. The wood owls had been born whole. They knew the songs, they knew the incantations, they knew the spells and rituals. The Labawians had been born in the mud and misery, but they had learned glory and the brightness of life once again. They sang with the wood owls. All of them sang in the direction of their conductor, the elven queen Gladriel. In one spot, a massive creature crashed down, the fiery impact of the meteor giving the time for life inside to establish itself. It drove roots deep, cracking bedrock to look for what it hungered for. It quickly developed giant book's lungs and stirred to clean the air. It shuddered with pain of the infection as that racked the body, but still it grew. Biological battle screen projected swell to life, protecting the infection from even the orbital guns. A shell began to form, allowing the tissue inside to form without constant attack. It sent out tentacles that, even as they died, left behind soil more conducive to new life than the old. A single blot in that week had been grown over a hundred miles wide. Uk Ak Hook followed in Lintia Three to meet with the great elven queen. She was dressed in armor, plates taken from overseer armor, can carrying his spear or the deadly blade. He shivered in awe at her. She was coldly beautiful, unworldly, and moving with a grace that made him want to weep. Ukakhok, bravest of the Libao's people, the elven queen said, reaching down and touching him. Are you ready to risk your life and limb for your people again? Yes, O queen, Uk said, looking at her beauty. Though it may cost you your life, the queen, Gladriel, asked. For my people, I'll do the John Connor even if I must die. Yuck responded, I have a quest for thee, noble one. Journey through the unclean lands, find the citadel of death, invade it, and stab the heart of darkness with this, your spear, she said. He grasped the spear and a warp did his hands, great crystals wrapping around the stick, and he could see a gold and silver fluid flowing around the stick. As you wish, Hook said. His people were a small one, but none had ever cared about them before. The lady had brought back the fish, both great and small, had returned the birds that sang and screeched, and even called up again the little lizards that Uk remembered from his youth. With you shall travel my servants, Elantia the brave, call the undying mechanic, to guide and keep you during your travels on troubles, the queen said. From beneath the moss stood up a great black wall steel mechanic, its armor breached, but its eyes still red. Mushrooms bloomed from its cracks and the shoulders and the backs. Crystals grew from the rents in its chest and legs, a burning sword in its hands. Elantia was clad in armor of crystal and living lace, armed with a sword of crystal and wood. Together, Uk-Ak-Hook and his two companions headed for the heart of darkness. The touch of the elven queen burned upon Uk's brow. The pulsing mass within the shell sensed with three when they approached. It sent its warriors against the trio, but none could prevail. It sensed within its shell, knowing the armor was proof against the weapon that could be brought against it. 
Their footsteps left behind spores that attacked the biomass the pulsating ones carefully nurtured on the ground that had eaten into the soil, spreading in moments connecting to one another, creating a long path that the rest of the vegetation used to assault the pulsating one's territory. The great black creature, clad in crystal and fungus, raised its fiery sword and struck, tearing a great hole in the side of the pulsating one's citadel. The three entered the space beyond. They crushed and destroyed the organs they found, severed the nerve cables and writhed in their way, smashed the creatures that were the pulsating one sent to fight. The black knight fell to a huge creature with massive blade arms that managed to shatter the crystal protecting the rents in each chest. He died with his fists around the creature's heart. He gave out a great triumphant-like death cry and shook the entire obscene citadel. In his death, nanospores poured from the mushrooms, streamed from the rents in his armor, turned the tissue everywhere black as the Rohan-class nanospores attacked the tissue of the pulsing one. Oak was wounded by a skinny creature with a stinger that fell from the ceiling and clung to his back, jabbing the stinger deep into his side. Iliantia swept it off of Ook's back with his sword. Together, the Alf and the Labawian struggled on. Fever gripped Ook, but Iliantia half carried him onwards. They fought deeper and deeper into the obscene citadel until, finally, they reached the heart of darkness. It was a great pulsating organ, like twisting coral piled high. The last of the pulsing one's soldiers attacked. Elantia stood between Ock and the foul creature that burst from blister-like sacks inside the great cavity. His own sword of crystal and wood in one hand and the burning war steel of the Black Knight in the other. He danced the dance of death and sang with the song of death as he did so. The blade splashed and he killed one after another. Ock drove into the black viscous fluid around his brain and burned his skin, tried to dissolve his transparent inner eyelids, but he felt the queen's touch on his brow and pressed on one hand tight around the spear. Ook scrambled up the pedestal of bone and sinew, the great pulsing mass sat atop of, used his claws on his hands to climb the mass itself. As he reached the top, Elantia fell beneath the last of his enemies, their blades as one another's hearts. Ook lifted the spear over his head, the same spear that he'd carried the night that he'd learned of the John Connor, and thrust it down into the mass. It ripped through the outer shell, the magic of the marine K-bar tearing through the hard chitin, as it drove deep into the neural tissue beyond the crystal cracked, leaking the gold and silver fluid. The creature screamed once before the nanite shredded it, absorbing the genomic code and transmitting it to the queen. Ook rolled onto his back and stared upward as the shell split and the fibrous tissue gave way until he could see the stars. There he laid. He watched the stars breathing heavy, his body racked with fever. As the two moons rose, he saw a delicate creature fly from the trees of the gossamer wings. It lifted him up and carried him to the tree. There it sang songs of healing and love, nursing him back to health. Eventually, Elantia four had been born whole and came for him. Ook limped back with Elantia five, who had been born whole with a scar down his face that Elantia three had received from the great creature, until he saw his old burrow. It had soft moss inside, and the Libawian gratefully sunk down into it. 
In his hand, he held the spear, the stick he had gathered that fateful night, the cable he had been given as a gift. The others croaked and clicked to him to tell him what he had seen, but he had done, but he found he had no words. He lived out the rest of his life, long by the standards of his people, hopping beside Elantia, even as the wood elf was reborn whole. He never forgot the lessons of John Connor time as the quest to pierce the black heart, and he never let go of his spear. A lesson he taught his tadpoles. Queen Gladriel, 2871, infestation eliminated, obscene one defeated, terraforming continues, restoring biosphere to pre-Lanecta-land status. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact, second wave. Chapter 99, Nectatai. The day was bright and clear, heat pounding down to be reflected by the golden sins surrounding them. The little wheeled ground car with no doors, no top, just belts to hold the driver and passengers inside of it, made growling noises as Major Carnite drove it along the winding road. Nectatai could see shards of bluish-green glass and shivered. Lost glass, she thought to herself, using the Turin name for it. How have they ever figured out how to recover a planet's biosphere from a glassing? I will never understand. So, uh, explain to me where we're going, Nectatai said. You said you wanted to see our ancient human ruins, so I'm driving you out to see some of the oldest ones that are still left, Major Carnite said. I've always wanted to come here, a female Terran in the pack said, her hair whipping around her face from the wind that the vehicle's velocity caused. She was wearing an adaptive camouflage and had a mag-pack rifle on her hands and with goggles over her eyes, like everyone else in the little jeep did. Things just kept coming up. Yeah, gets like that, the other passenger, a male Terran, said. He was looking at the surroundings, but to Nectatai it felt more menacing, more sharp-edged than just looking at the surroundings. She still couldn't believe that suddenly she was important enough to even rate more bodyguards. There were six of the giant black mechanics running ahead, besides and behind the vehicle, their feet sending up puffs of sand as they ran silently. Sonic baffling, she thought to herself, turning away from the mechanics and the sand to stare out at the windshield and sand. Finally, the vehicle turned to the corner around a large cliff and it came into sight, a massive valley in sandstone, some of the sand coated with a thin layer of lost glass. Ahead of them were pillars, some fallen, some still standing, giant pyramids, buildings and statues carved from solid rock. Standing guard were fierce-looking armors with elaborate headdresses and carrying stars that were crackling with energy. Major Carnite stopped the vehicle and got out. We walk from here. They don't want vehicles profaning the valley. What is this place? Nectati asked as she got out. The valley of the kings, where the ancient kingdom once buried their dead. There is ancient legends of wolf gates, but nobody found any actual evidence, despite being one of the better places to put them before the loss. The magnetic field back then would have stopped-ported a warp gate quite easily. One of the mechanics said softly, The battles fought here were so legendary that even great religious figures once fought in these sands. Nectati looked at the architecture around her and slowly walked with the others. She knew they were walking slowly because of her stride. Human strides were roughly a meter. Hers was half of that. 
Watching historical videos and taking part in historical EVRs had given Nectatai a certain awe of the human stride. She had seen recordings of something called an Olympic Games, which were divided into four categories. Natural, which required a gene scan, biomod, which only allowed certain genetic modifications, and bioengineered tissues. Cyber, which allowed the required certain cybernetic parts, and lastly, unlimited, where there were no restrictions. It was the natural part that intrigued her, the idea of so many different nations, so many different planets now, all competing in two-month-long series of events was just dazzling to her. She had watched something called a marathon, the 42.195 kilometers or 26.219 mile race, where the athlete bellowed out, God save the mantid queen, for we won't, at the end of it, but being stunning to watch. She knew she was 1.25 meters high. That meant that the entire race was 33,750 of her body lengths. How fast they had run that competition had been a thing of all for her to watch. Watching those human athletes run the race had been fascinating and horrifying. One hour and 52.31 minutes to run of that course. Nectati had ridden the vehicle that traveled slower than that. She knew that the humans tried their ability to run distances that were incomprehensible feat to anyone else, was critical in what had fashioned humans. She had discovered that the record for running a thousand miles was nine days, twenty hours, that human soldiers were required to run with full gear for miles, even with modern technology. The mechanics surrounding her, where they had biological, unmodified bodies, had been required to run mile after mile until they could run the 3.5 miles in full gear and still fight at the end of it. If one of her people had been required to do that, their hearts would have given out before they had traveled a mile. She discovered that the humans had a lunar mile, an event where a human with goggles had to protect their eyes and noseplugs ran a mile across the vacuum of their mood as some kind of weird bragging right. Every soldier around her had the lunar mile under their belt, which made her painfully aware of just how short her stride was as they walked into the valley. Their abilities to eat and drink as they ran or walked was weird to her. She had watched primitivism reenactments of hunting, where humans would just walk after an animal to either capture it or kill it. She had watched a male turn around and walk backwards, urinate, and then turn back around and keep walking. Towards the end, she felt bad for the animal. No matter how far it ran, the human just walked up to it while it was eating or trying to sleep, over and over and over, until the creature just gave up. But humans never did. She was learning a lot about her hosts, about the people who had been moving her people to a planet that she had purchased, who had helped them set up their colony. Now she had wanted to see an ancient human ruins. Large was the biggest thing that came to mind. It made sense to her. The large people, the Terrans liked to impress one another with how large something else was. The marathon was large, the lunar mile was large, and everything they built was large. When they saw the great pyramids of stone, as she stopped and stared, they're huge, was the first thought that came to her mind. They had damage to them, weather, time, and paintina, and bluish-green glass from having been exposed to the glassing, which their sheer size and what they had been made out of helped them survive. Those are tombs, Nectides asked, staring. 
to keep the great priest kings placated. We don't know that much anymore, but it is a combination of respect and fear that made the people build these vast tombs to imprison their dead god kings, called pharaohs. One of the mechanics, Gunnery Sergeant Bowman, answered. They laid curses on the tombs, which slowly took the lives of all who desecrated them through terrible rotting diseases. Don't forget that sometimes the mummies of the pharaohs would come alive and kill those who stole from the tomb. The female Terran, Lieutenant Krykov, added. Never proven, the mechanic said. Nectar teacher stared at the huge pyramid. The massive status, the Terrans started bickering around her about whether or not mummies actually came to life and attacked people, whether or not they could turn water to blood, or summon swarms of locusts, or call forth a sandstorm that they devoured entire kingdoms with. They all argued about mummies, curses, gods, possibly warp gates and alien invasion slaveries, religious wars and dead seas being parted. How poor boys were holy icons, and more as Nectati stared in wonder at everything around her. Because she was a Xeno diplomat, the fierce looking gods led her, and her alone, into one of the giant pyramids. Two of the fierce looking gods, a Terran body with the head of a black canine, followed her after warning her not to speak. She looked at the artwork on the wall, the golden treasures, the jars containing everything from spices to grain to gold to organs. The place felt ancient in a way that she couldn't describe afterwards, and the golden sarcophagus holding the mortal remains of an ancient Terran kings were strangely frightening. They felt like they were judging her ability to lead her people. As she left, she twisted her hands on a grasping stick, thinking about what she'd seen. These structures were built with muscle, no graviton, no antigrav, just muscle, round sticks, mud, and a woof. She stood just outside the tomb, staring at her Terrans, the six mechanics, all men and women that had been killed or volunteered to have a full conversion cyborgs. The three others, two of them bioborgs, all their bodily organs replaced by vat-grown tissue designed for combat. The last... Major Carnite, who was apparently about as close to someone in the Terran military, got to pure strain human and was still in service. She could hear them loudly discussing whether or not the mummified priest could breathe a cloud of bees on an unbeliever. They were waving their hands and arms, their body language aggressive, but she had been around humans long enough to know that things weren't about to get violent. They were fully engaged in the discussion and were bringing their natural human aggressiveness into the discussion. Nectati moved up and stood with them. The conversation trailed off with a, Well, I think they could, and they all looked at her. Did you find what you were looking for? Major Carnite asked, leaning down in front of her. Nectati slowly nodded. I believe so. This is an ancient place, and I understand why they do not want it defiled. This place speaks to some people, the mechanic gunnery sergeant said softly. My father took me here when I was nine, so that I could know how even the mantid could not erase my people. I knelt one knee and bowed my head, alone in the medjay, before the sarcophagus of the pharaoh Khufu, and I knew that I was born to be a marine, felt his eyes upon me even beyond death, and heard the wisdom in my soul. Nek Nati nodded again, wringing out a water bottle and taking a long drink. You can feel every one of the fifteen thousand years upon this place, the Bioborg male said. Nectati spit out her water. What? The Bioborg male repeated himself. Nectati looked around at what about the ruins was hundreds of millions of years old. 
They're only 15,000 years old. She stared at the humans. But it was built with muscle power, mud, sticks, and whips. They all nodded. My people were industrious. Gunnery Sergeant Bowman said. He swept his hands out. Here we are, buried our great pharaohs, the priest kings, and with their servants to watch over us from the afterlife. Fifteen thousand years ago, my people had been enslaved by the Lanakalan, she blurted. The marine looked at her, and suddenly those blue eyes seemed cold. And we will teach them how to make them regret that. A cold breeze swept over Nectati, stirring the sand at her feet. It sounded like whispers, cold whispers, to her for a moment. Her dirty link flashed error for a second before it cleared up. She looked again at the humans and understood again an epiphany that matched that one from the night where the bunnies had made her almost hysterical. It felt so ancient because it mattered to the humans, even with barely known history wiped out by wars and disaster. This place still mattered to the humans. A thousand generations had gone by, and Gunnery Sergeant Bowman still heard his ancestors speaking to him. Nick Tati was silent the walk back to the little jeep, on the ride back thinking about what she had learned. Her people had been like almost everyone else. They cooperated, they built what was best for all. They spent time improving, cooperating, and sharing. While her people were being enslaved by the Lanark clan, the humans with water, sand sticks, muscle, and whips had built stone structures that had survived a near hit from glassing. A society still using bronze had built an edifice that people came to see, came to commune with, even after they had lost almost everything about the people who had built them. She thought about her people. Her history class had mainly focused on how lucky her people were that the Lanark clan had arrived to stop them from destroying themselves. Soon after they'd built their first jump call and made their first jump drive journey, she tried to think if her people ever built such things. She didn't know. Why didn't she know? When she returned to her new hotel room, she sat quietly, keeping the lights dimmed. She thought about it. She ate, chewing mechanically, and thought about it. She bathed herself, rubbing the foam until she was nothing but a mass of bubbles, and thought about it. She knew her people had discovered technology too quickly. Were lucky the Lanarklands had arrived. But what else had they done? Terrasol's history was insane, crazed. They didn't know the truth from legend. Worse, they didn't care. She'd heard it repeated often. That's obviously bullcrap, but it's cool, so I choose to believe it. But hers, hers was gone. How? How had she never noticed before? How had her people let it happen? An out before him echoed in her head, a paraphrase of the massive war book who even now was guarding her. The Lanarklan would remind her that such a place was a waste of resources. The gold, the stored grain, the time and energy put into such a building, a monument, was wasteful in infinite universe. Yet, Gunnery Sergeant Bowman had lost his mortal body by rushing into a battle-damaged reactor room and putting six people from the wreckage and shut down the reactors before the battleship could explode. He had destroyed his genocode, and he had chosen to become a mechanic. He had saved thousands of his fellow shipmates in an action that prevented something that, as space vessel Captain Nectite secretly feared, he was known as the Living Dead Borgs. 
He had knelt before a ruler 15,000 years dead, who had ordered him to become a marine, and he had saved thousands. Ektachi paced back and forth in the room. What had her people built? What had happened to their great works? She turned on the tripod and flipped through the channels. There, a bloody gory gruesome charge up a beach where unarmed Terrans climbed over their own dead to break the back of the enemy nation. There, Terrans in damaged armor fought in the tunnels beneath a hateful mars against mantids two times their size, matching blade arms, able to score war steel with chrome steel tools. There, a small Terran girl running from a burning city, stripped naked, covered in burns. There, a red-skinned warriors riding great feathered lizards, wielding bows, fought warriors wearing blue and yellow on horseback with pistols and swords. There, a Triana ad tasted an ice cream cone. There, a ship captain ordered his engines to overload on deserted ships so that he could destroy a meteor that was going to destroy a world. There, a hologram addressed a world. They had history. She knew that if she got one of the Terrans, they could name every single one of the images that she had seen. Where was her people's history? She refused to believe that that didn't have one. She refused to believe that she had been taught, and once her people had banded together, they had lived modestly. Humans could walk, could run for days. They never stopped. They never gave up. They just kept going and going. No matter what, they just kept on coming. No matter how far even history ran, they would simply keep on walking. They could run across an entire continent in two months. They could run through a million years of technology. Because they did not stop. They didn't sit back and go, well, this is good enough. Because humans just kept going, kept pounding their footsteps into the dirt. Their history was their unstopping footsteps. Where was hers? She clenched her teeth, knowing the answer to what had happened to her people's history. The Lanact lands. We'll teach you to make them regret that. End of chapter. First Contact, Second Wave, Chapter 100, Vuxton. General was an anomaly in the Terran Space Force Marine Corps. It wasn't that he was overweight. It wasn't that he had to double chin and was balding with watery brown eyes. It wasn't even that he was a human who had been orphaned and then raised by a Trianad. He didn't have a combat action badge. Two hundred and thirty years as a marine and he had never seen combat. The closest he came to it was when, two days after he had left the planet, his personal foxhole had been hit by an enemy rocket that had killed four other marines. Most beings thought that it was his lack of combat action badge as to why he kept butting heads with the combat commanders. The rumor that he disliked combat troops because he had never seen combat always went through the upper ranks, but not through the lower. General Tic Tac, as he was known, had the best hospitals, his logistic bases were the most supplied, his medical personnel were the most highly trained, his engineers and mechanics were the best out there, with plenty of parts already crafted and rarely needing to run under creation engines. Tic Tac also had the best and safest things that command didn't approve of. 
His narco brews were the richest and the most variety. His heavy elk never made anyone blind. His smoke and chaw peddlers had the best of the old systems. His ice cream was the thickest, the richest, and the best fruit, and always with the real Terran Moo Moo milk. His brothels always had the cleanest joy boys and coin girls willing to do the dirtiest things. Tic Tac's men stayed bribed, voided too much greed, and rarely busted a being just for being their species. Even the MPs admitted that Tic Tac ran things the best. MI and CID had embedded so many people in Tic Tac's staff that the joke was, how many marines does it take to change a poster in one of Tic Tac's staff rooms? They're only one. The rest are all military intelligence and criminal investigation division. Even steel-teethed warborgs preferred Tic Tac's area of operations to even R&R vessels. General Tic Tac knew how his fellow leaders viewed him. They were right. He didn't have a combat action badge. He didn't understand the first thing about combat, which he admitted, even to himself, the possibility of scared his hair off. Didn't know a damn thing about most of the fleet and the core weapons and was never going to be some great military leader with a stack of victories high enough to make the cult of the blade take notice. He didn't care. When he had been told that Tolkien 1 and Tolkien 2 were lost, he had protested, stating that there was no evidence the enemy was even going to be making the landing false. He had known that this was going beyond his capability. Part of him had panicked immediately at the thought of trying to figure out how to stop germs from entering the atmosphere. He had breathed a sigh of relief when Colonel Harvey and Colonel Cozy had been brought in to handle the combat operations. He lived in fear that someday he might have to save someone with a gun. He'd privately believed that he'd probably shoot himself in the schlong except he wasn't a sharpshooter. Sure, he could usually figure out how to feed every being in the refugee camps with less than half the rations they needed, but actually do anything to hold his rifle and scream in terror? Yeah. That wasn't happening, which was why he felt so relieved looking over his operations center, a twisted bread of dough pretzel in one of hand and a narco brew in the other. His engineers were going over the configuration schematics for the shelters. He knew there were eight different shelter designs in use, which would require a separate team for each of them to reconfigure in the anti-precursor design for biological hazard protection. He had no idea how to do it, but he had men who did. He wandered through the operation center, watching everyone work. Here, the team he had assigned to making sure the potlings and brood carriers suffered minimal discomfort if they had to expose to 3G and 5G acceleration. Anything higher was unacceptable, and he was offering bonuses in elk, herb, and sweaty time to any team member who figured out how to safely get below 3G without sacrificing protection or lengthening the amount of time that they would need in the atmosphere. There, another team worked to figure out how to make the reactor last longer. Podlings and the three sexes all needed trace nutrients needs that were different from the others in the group. The goal was something that the Nutrigel paste dispensers could churn out and had variety, taste, texture, smell, as well as fully loaded nutrients. Tic Tac knew he wasn't the brightest eater out there, but by burning crumb egg, he surrounded himself the best and made sure that they had access to the best. There was a minor argument between the three competing teams overseeing the reconfiguration and the steered himself over there, gesturing a captain to bring over a tray of narco brew and stim sticks. To keep any environmental hazards from entering the shelters while keeping external ventilation, power, and waste disposal lines open. 
one of the team members was saying. Then why do you suggest? Should we just have them running on canned air? What if we need to get into those shelters to protect them? Another shot back. Gentle beings, gentle beings, what is the disagreement? General Amaktakalikakak asked mildly. We're trying to keep an external threat from reaching anyone inside the shelters. We're in particular concerned with tainted organisms designed to move through ground soil and follow water seepage, the third one said. Tikta looked at the schematic for a long time. The current consensus was to move the FTL drives underground via drill housings and mount them on the sides, providing access panels for maintenance system technicians. Tic-tac frowned. He lazily pointed at the FTL engines. How many of our Talcan brothers and sisters are rated for FTL drive repair? He asked. They all looked at each other and then at Tic-tac as if he'd grown a second head. Um, none, sir? One of them said carefully. Show me a simulation of the reconfiguration stages until they get to the refugee planet, Tic-tac said. He watched the shelter's wireframe shift, shift again, shift a third time, then the engines get added, and then another shift, a launch shift, an orbital shift, an FTL shift, and a post-FTL shift, another orbital shift, and a landing shift. Tic-tac shook his head, looking at the four engineering groups. Gentle beings, gentle beings, I'm disappointed. This is the core. Our motto is few moving parts as possible, not the Navy's motto of can I add any more missions and equipment to this, and you are not thinking straight, Tic-Tac said. He put the simulation at the first stage, the current stage. He made only a handful of alterations, then adjusted the engines. There, gentle beings, I present you a shuttle block. Tic-Tac shrugged as all the engineers looked at him in horror. I'm not an engineer, and I'm sure that you had much more elegant plans, he said as he took a swig of his knocker-brew, wiped the foam from his scraggly moustache, and shrugged. You handle the details of that reconfiguration, no more. The engineers stared at each other as Tic-Tac walked away. All he had done was pull the shelters into one long block, seal the entire thing with three meters of wall steel with no exits or entrances at all, and had the engines attached by wrapping straps around the block-like wall steel-wrapped shelters. They immediately set off to work, talking about how, of course, it should go to internal atmosphere as if it was a long-jump ship right now. Tic-Tac heard his data link ping and opened up a window in the corner of his vision as he watched one of his subordinates, a talented Rygelian, manage to find two unused creation engines and order them to be moved near the Talcon lines and configured to repair, refit, and reload operations. General Imak Takalakak speaking, he said, putting his favorite wallpaper of himself sitting behind a desk on terror. General Colonel Harvey here. The other man said he was using real time, which was fine. There was no chance to straight turn revealing his logistics chains to anyone peering at the data channel. Ah, Colonel Harvey, I assume you have called me with good news about how I was right and the enemy won't be making planetfall, Tic-Tac said. Colonel Harvey shook his head, resting the urge to reach through the data link and strangle the fat Terran. No, sir. They've landed in force. Meteoric drop pods are landing all across the planet now, he said instead. Oh, that's unfortunate, Tic-Tac said. He pinged his engineers and that they had an hour to complete the initial reconfiguration plan that would go as is. I was hoping that I was correct. Harvey just sighed. No, General, we've lost a significant amount of territory to the enemy already. The newest drop pods contain creatures that exit the crack pods and attack as soon as they cross the crater. 
Well, that sounds like a job for your men, Colonel, Tic-Tac answered, feeling a cold chill at his back. He glanced around his room, looking for any wearing his sidearms. He pinged them all to get their sidearms and reluctantly pinged his assistant to retrieve his own from the armory. Harvey swallowed. Yes, sir. Let me know what my people can do for yours. We'll be quite busy, I'm sure you understand, with the logistical concerns, Tic-Tac said. For the honor of the Corps, Colonel, he said and cut the link. He turned and snapped his fingers, pinging everyone's data links. They turned to look at him. The enemy is making plentiful. Move to readiness too. Warm up creation engines and nanoforges. All logistics commanders ensure that the combat troops in your areas have 150% of unit commander recommended food, water, and ammunition per element. Alert all medical units to prepare for incoming casualties. He said, Get her done! Harvey ground his teeth as the general cut the line. There was nobody else he'd want handling post-battle reconstruction, hell, even active combat logistics, but the man was just so goddamn dense it drove Harvey crazy. Does he not take this serious? Brentelik asked, staring at the hollow bank. Harvey shook his head. It's not that. He's not a combat soldier. I doubt he even knows where his weapon is, but, uh... He held up his fingers to stop Brentelik's angry outburst. I'm willing to lay bets that he knows where every single bullet and scrap of armor is located in the entire system. Brentelik was silent for a moment. I worry for my husband. Harvey nodded. I get it. He waved a holotank and loaded up a schematic of the area hit the hardest. Your husband's there, isn't he? Brentelik nodded. The first Tarkin Marine Brigade, New Blood. Harvey turned to Brentelik and stared at her for a long moment. What? She asked, feeling suddenly nervous about the way the human was staring at her. It's time, Madam Director, for you to learn to put your protective gear and use a vac lift and your emergency gear. But I have too much to... She started to argue, but then saw Colonel Harvey's face. She swallowed. Perhaps you're right. Harvey nodded. Good. I want you to be able to put it on in the dark, in the lift itself, in under 30 seconds. We'll start practicing now. Rentelek sighed. She tried it on twice, once to ensure it fit right, and once to check to make sure that it was still on working order. She sighed again and followed the big human in. It felt strange to have him watch her strip naked and put the suit on. Again, he said after the first time. That was four minutes. You're dead. Do it again. She sighed and started undoing the seals. Buxton heard Private Second Class Perklek cry out in fear and turned, seeing the other Talcon covered completely in spores. The other Talcon had nudged a seed pod and it had vomited yellowish-green spores all over the armor-covered troop. Buxton turned and pointed a nozzle of the weapon that he was carrying at his fellow troop. Stay calm, Private, Buxton snapped, and he thumbed the trigger. The flame whooshed out the nozzle, covering the armored Talcon. Buxton kept it up to count three and then released the trigger. Lacey's soot wafted down from the small suit of armor, and he could see the Patek was panting and opened his comlink. Breathe through your nose, trooper, he snapped. Yes, sir, Peklak said. His breathing changed. Everyone, watch your feet, Wuxton said, as the section link would go both squads. Squad leaders, watch your men. He got back a chorus of ascents and waved at his men to keep moving. The only ones carrying flamethrowers were four of the twelve Terran marines and Wuxton. The air was full of spores drifting around. Some glowed yellow, some green. A few here and there glowed red. 
The plants were twisting, looking, greasy or waxy looking, and broad leaves covered in veins. Some were beginning to flower, others had tiny buds of fruit on them. Three weeks ago, this had been a park. Now it looked like nobody had been here in decades. Buxton checked his HUD again. There had been eight knots landing in the park, hitting where the pond began. His biggest one so far, and this was in his unit's area of responsibility. He knew his men were nervous, hell, he was nervous, but someone had to check it out. Lieutenant Ben Spoon had told him that there shouldn't be any problem, but he was going to send twelve Terran marines, including four warborgs with him just in case. Up ahead, the road had been reduced to a gravel road. Try not to brush against the plants too much. More steel's proof against most acids these things are giving out, but we don't want to take any chance of something new. Gunnery Sergeant Wentmark said, his voice calm and even. Roger, was all Buxton said, squeezing the flamethrower slightly. Buxton, take point, the gunny said. Buxton sighed and trotted forward a little, looking around steadily. He heard his first sergeant's voice in the black of his head. Keep your head on the swivel, Vux. You'll be fine. The jungle hissed and creaked around him. Liquid patted and there was the sound of something moving in the foliage, but nothing showed itself. Each step was an exercise and nervousness, and every soldier expected a puffball to erupt no matter how many troops had stepped there before them. A vine dropped down, but a knife caught it, severing it, leaving the end suddenly curling up and acid dripping out the hollow spot. The sawtooth thorns pushed through the vegetative skin on the inside of the curls. I took my family here a month ago, Private Fotland said softly. Same here, Fuxton said. My podlings swam in the lake. I wouldn't recommend taking them now, Trooper, the gunny said. No, sir, Fotland said as a few people chuckled or flushed icons of amusement to replace their icons for a moment. Buxton blocked it all out, keeping a watch all around him. According to his map, he could almost be at the lake, but the vegetation was getting close to the point that he was having trouble moving forward. Gotta switch to my cutting bar, Buxton said, slapping the flamethrower nozzle against his leg and attaching it. He pulled out the cutting bar of his back, which was basically a chainsaw with a graviton generator in the hilt to balance it out as some troops called the chainsaw. It was listed officially as a powered foliage cutting tool. Vuxton thumbed the switch and it roared to life, emitting smoke as the engine used the hydrogen and oxygen in the air to run the pistons, leaving the water to drip out. The vegetation snapped at his armor, spikes and vegetation teeth sliding along the wall steel of his armor. A vine snapped at his cry-steel visor. After a scouting run by an uplifted simchimp had shown a plaster steel and duraplants could be easily mounted, all the visors had been switched, hard enough that his ears had popped. A branch slapped him hard enough that he took a step back. Another vine wrapped around his arm, and when he yanked it, he pulled a huge puffball against him. The marine behind him was washing fire over him every two steps. Finally, he slashed across the curtain of vines, dropping them to the ground, and stomped through them, glad to the Terran armor, which was completely environmentally sealed. The lake was covered with algae and thick purple algae of weird onion-like reddish shapes bobbing in the water. Smalls drifted on the lake, twinkling yellow, green, and red. Veins ran through the algae, thick and pulsating, and an island in the middle was covered with moss and bulge when throbbing of obscene life. Ring up the flame, the gunnery started to say. 
Get back, everyone, get back, Buxton yelled, breaking onto the channel at the same time as he flexed his muscles that didn't exist through his cyberlink. Two shoulder-mounted weapons deployed the rounds whining as they reconfigured. Vuxton took a step back as his two shoulder-mounted weapons went into rapid fire, his eyes already tracking and marking targets as he spoke. Six rockets into the island and twelve of his forty-millimeter grenades into the water. Get back, watch the flanks and rear, everyone fall back ten meters, the gunnery sergeant roared. The island exploded, revealing a heavy chitin as the creature inside roared in pain and began to stand up. The hypergrowth algae blanketed sliding off of it. It was standing inside the fifty-foot lake and still had the close to a hundred feet of body above the water, burning patches on its back from where the rockets had gone off against the fibrous mat and the explosive forged penetrations of the Jura alloy had driven deep into its body. The grenades exploded in the water, mountaining chitin and blood into the air. The dozen creatures burst from the mud and algae at the edge, unfolding blade arms and clacking huge jaws that drooled with acid. They rushed Buxton, their genetic programming telling them that the little black creature in front of them would run away like all prey did. Buxton's didn't bother trying to switch out weapons. He just stood a single step forward, satisfied that the ground around him was solid, and swung his chainsaw with one hand, even as his other hand dropped to his hip out of reflex, pulling out his ten-millimeter magak pistol. Behind him, he could hear, and a split second later glanced behind him, and he showed him that the warborgs and the Terran marines were struggling with massive creatures that had moved slightly through the jungle facing them until the time to spring the ambush was ripe. Except Vuxton's warning had given the marines an entire two seconds warning. My podlings play here. Given out the Terran roar of pure aggression, he began hacking at the waist-high creatures that swarmed from the mud, firing his pistol as he used the war steel barrel to block the drooding mouths of the fangs, blowing apart the skulls in a shower of blood, gore, and shattered chitin. The blade bit deep and he squeezed it to full power, shredding the ones in front of him. He slashed and stabbed, flowing to close-quarters combat drills that had been hammered into him exhausting day after exhausting day on the hot tarmac of the marine training base. Get wrecked. His rocket pack reloaded and creation engine running hot, and he cut loose with all six rockets again in a blinding flashing ripple the missile reconfiguration for explosive penetrators. The huge creature shrieked as the rounds burned meters into its flesh before exploding, blowing the mass of craters in its torso. Its eight eyes fixed on Vuxton, and it began rushing the little marine. Yakwatanatan! Vuxton was busy stepping on the dead, climbing up on them when swinging his chainsword, still roaring out the Terran phrases he learned from a long lifetime in the city in scout armor. The crab-like creature was still used to their powerful back legs to climb over the dead, and even Vuxton killed them. Some climbed onto his arm and either put his pistol against his small faces under the top of the shell and pulled the trigger, or sliced them off of his arm with his chainsword the teeth throwing sparks against his war steel of his own armor. His grenade launcher fired again, overriding the minimum safe distance and blowing huge gouts of mud and water up into the air, chitin and blood mixed with the rain down. 
A glance showed him that the two squads were in the fight, firing grenades into the jungle, even as they used their smart links to direct fire from the Magak rifles. The big creature roared in agony and rage as it kept rushing through the hip-deep water. Vukton was almost covered in a mound, still fighting, either dead and living crab things up so slightly above his waist, even as he fired his pistol as fast as the bolt could shave off a piece of Jira alloy and block on the magazine. He'd fired it over a hundred times, the block halfway shaved already. And still, he kept shooting, overriding the heat warnings in the barrel of the pistol. Brace! One of the warborgs shouted at him. The fuel-air grenade went off right above him, blowing the dead and living crab things away from him. The huge monster reached down and grabbed him, lifting him up. He heard his armor alarm ringing as the creature squeezed him with one hand. He fired rockets point-blank into the chest, shot it through the top of the mouth, and, following his training, thrust the chainsword into the joint of the thumb and hand, sawing back and forth. Gore bounded it out, covering him as the hand opened and he dropped to the ground. He landed like he'd been taught, heel, backside, shoulders. His grenades, still faced for impact, fired off four times before the weapons jammed. The grenades went off and the creature's chest even as he slammed his pistol against the launcher of his shoulder. The grenade launcher clacked shut and the chuffed out of two grenades as Buxton got to his feet. The monster collapsed. It started to rise when Buxton stepped forward, drew his arm back and thrust his chainsaw between the creature's nostrils. The blade, screaming and smoking as it tore pieces of chitin and sprayed tissue over him. It coughed and collapsed, but Vuxton held onto his weapon, his grenades and rocket launcher reportedly fully loaded. His engine was at 60% heat and 20% slush since he had it running on rapid reload. He fired three times into the face with his pistol. The fighting behind him had stopped. Buxton jumped up, activated his graviton generator, and slammed into the head with his boots as if he was a two tons hitting a 5G gravity. The head exploded. Buxton stepped slowly back, breathing heavy, his limbs trembling. It took him twice to get his pistol holstered. Permission to call the artillery sergeant, Buxton asked the gunnery sergeant. The lake is some kind of spawning pool now. How did you know, Corporal Buxton? one of the warborgs asked. I took my podlings here last month. There was no island in the lake, Buxton said, suddenly feeling exhausted. His armor loaded a stem onto his veins and fatigue washed away. Good eye, trooper. Good eye, the sergeant said. Everyone fall back. It's gonna rain in two minutes. Buxton gave a yawn to pull in oxygen and turned around. Buxton, take point, the gunnery sergeant said. Take us home. Home. Brentelek was looking over the morale of the shelters. So far, everyone was nervous. The biggest fear was that the military couldn't keep away what the rumor mill was climbing was monsters landing from space. An icon pinged to life and Brentelek tapped it. It was a morale punctuation alert. Something was raising morale. A picture appeared and Brentlick inhaled and gave it a sharp squeal of distress. It was a black, armored figure, half buried by obscene, scary-looking things that looked like huge crabs had suddenly grown powerful triple-jointed jump legs and their claws were five times the size that they should be. It had tooth bar in one hand laying about it and was firing a pistol with the other. The icon above the head, Corporal Vuxton, first Talcon Marines. 
There was a dozen of the crabs, all trying to tear her husband's life away. As she watched, laugh icons, giggling icons, were floating up the edges, along with hearts that popped into sparkles, icons denoting hysterical laughter. The people were laughing at her husband fighting for his life. Harvey suddenly burst out into laughter behind her. She whirled around and glared at the big human by opening her eyes wide as possible, putting her hands on her hips. What's so funny? That's my husband fighting for his life. Read the text, Harvey chuckled. She turned around and the terrible picture of her husband fighting dozens of half-crustacean, half-insect creatures took a step back to see the writing. On the top of it it said, Worker Vuxton, you are fined one day's pay. On the bottom it said, For unexcused tardiness to work. Could only goggle at the text and the picture, her brain unable to comprehend what she was seeing and why it was funny. Harvey snickered again. Another one came up, her husband held tight by the massive six-fingered hand of a creature that must have been a hundred feet tall, its hands wrapped around her husband below his armpits. Behind it, the lake could be seen, water visible in small circles and explosive geysers. He was clearly identified by his ID tag over his head. He was shooting it in the mouth with a pistol held tight in his fist, that chained bar thing spraying gore from the creature's hand. More hearts, more icons of amusement and merriment. Her mouth went dry. The words, Madam Director, Harvey said, trying not to laugh. The words were again in heavy font. Excuse me, sir, the pool is closed for cleaning. There she could only stare. That was her husband. Another picture, this one a short video clip of her husband stepping up to the huge creature's face and it roared and shoved a chainsaw into its nose. The pool! It floated up. Her husband stepped back and shot it repeatedly in the face. Is reserved, floated up. Her husband jumped up, landing on his head and crushing it to explode in a shower of gore. Four podlings, floated up. They were laughing. The shelter's morale was higher than it had ever been since they'd entered the shelters. She turned away as another short video showed up. A warborg shooting a bar of fire at her husband, who was covered in flames that he ignored as he walked forward. Despite the evidence, Trooper Vuxted was unable to locate the human. Was the caption. Another caption appeared, Thank you for not smoking. Her hands shook as she moved over to the table and poured herself a glass of water. He's all right. They're cleaning spores off of him with flames, Harvey said softly, moving up to her as out of the arm's reach. He brought up a menu and punched up a sandwich, making the food replicator whirr. Fruit printer, go brr, he mumbled. Chuckling. Why are they laughing? She asked. He's trying to protect him. Because it's funny to them. He isn't their husband. They aren't laughing at your husband. They're laughing because they're scared and worried, Harvey said. Doing combat, our gestalts often throw stuff up like that to help calm us. They're laughing because they're scared, Harvey said, sliding a dish with sauce over to himself and then picking up a sandwich. You'll be all right. He had it under control. I didn't see any armor breaches, and he's been trained for things like this. Brendelik shivered and followed Harvey's example, bringing up a tray of salted nuts to eat. General Amak Takalakak saw the memes coming across the starter at them for a moment. They represented a sharp increase in morale. 
He chewed on his lower lip for a moment and then walked over to the hot table where several of his men were looking over new designs for the brood carrier sling. He pinged his data link for a tidbit of information and nodded to himself. I want you to switch to a priority, Tic Tac nodded to himself. There are 4,382 Talcon in our beloved corps doing various jobs. You will run off male and female Talcon in uniform, soft stuffies and action figures. Ensure that all potlings and brood carrier service members are given one. I want to do your part posters drawn up and put that says... He paused for a moment, thinking, Have it say, they fight so we can escape and Talcon will live on... on them... His men all nodded as Tic Tac turned around, walking away. What he'd seen on those pictures scared the ever-living hell out of him. He knew, in his heart, he'd not have only spent the whole time screaming. He'd have probably fouled his armor. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode, and I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.